Ah, oh, and oh my gosh, we're almost on five hours of recording time. I did it again. Ah, this book. Even with and the this lunch is break just, and well, the lunch makers. break and we started late, but we started yeah. late and everything. But still, yeah, See? no, it's this. I I bring this on myself, and this is not even the whole book. I'm so glad we broke this into two halves. <laughs> Welcome to Heard Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that is looking at a book so big we can't do it in one episode. I'm your host, Rob. Dennis. <laughs> and Kevin is traveling, and Richard had something come up at the last minute, so you're stuck with the two of us, but that actually works well because Dennis is our resident Eldari expert, and we're all we're gonna be talking about the brand new Codex Eldari, which is such a big and complex book that we cannot discuss it in one episode without doing another like monster episode, which I I, I don't want to edit that long <laughs> a show. It's I did that with the Tau episode, and I I regret everything. So, so, so the goal is to do like two three hour episodes, so it can be longer than the Tau. <laughs> uh, you know, eventually it'll just be spread out over over more time uh, right. to the point where we are going to really skip news and new releases because the main news and new releases, the Eldari Codex and um, a number of plastic kits that have been released at the same time or are up for pre-order as of yesterday. Uh, so like Dark Reapers, the new Guardian Box, the new Mog and Raw, the new Warlocks, those are all available for uh, pre-order now. Um, and then, of course, we had Eldritch Omens a week or two ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, which has the new Autark, the new Guardians, and the new Shroud Runner, like, or not Guardians, new the new Autark, the new Rangers, and the new Shroud Runners, which are basically Ranger jet bikes. Uh, so there's a lot of new plastic stuff, which, by the way, Games Workshop was kind enough to provide us with all those plastic kits, all these new things that have been released. So that means that Craft World Waifu is happening. I, I offered <laughs> I offered them to you, Dennis, and you said, no, that's okay. I'd rather you make your joke army. I, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, so. I, I'm for more Eldar players out there. So and, I, I mean, I, I've got yeah. more rangers and new rangers on jet bikes, and I, I'm probably going to start incorporating those into my army. So we'll, we'll <laughs> both do our thing. Yeah, and honestly, this is not the first time I have played Eldar. Um, way nope. back in 6th edition when uh, Ally, the Ally Matrix first became a thing, or was it even earlier than that? It may have been 5th edition. No, Well, yeah, it was definitely the Ally Matrix. Yeah, it was the Ally Matrix, so I think it was, like, it may have been 5th edition, but it's like uh, I actually created, like, an allied detachment of... Uh, Eldar to run alongside my Tau. And so, like, I back before there was such a thing as like Craft World traits. So, which is why I think it was fifth edition. Because, yeah. like, yes, because I had like Eldrad and Rangers and um, War Walkers and Dire Avengers, and I was running them all under uh, Ally Talk colors, except for Eldrad, who I was kind of running as El <laughs> and 
in uh, right. Ally Talk Colors, so it's just like it didn't matter back then. Now it'd be very different, but right. And also, your main reason was, hey, here's some sniping I can do, and also mostly here's some psychic defense. Because yes, yeah, it was it, it, getting Eldrad in for psychic psychic shenanigans was was something I could do. Um, obviously, that would no longer work. But I'm I'm still curious <laughs> no. to uh, to try this out. It's like I. I only have, well, I mean, I technically do have psychic armies because I do have, um, like, I have a Chaos Space Marine army and I've got Chaos Demon stuff. So, like, I have psychers, but, and I've got Death Guard, obviously. So, I've got, you know, Mortarian, I've got psychers, but most of the armies I play are not. So, this is an army where you kind of definitely want to have at least one psyker. So, it'll be, it'll be a yeah. different experience for me. No, it, it'll be a fun experience. So yes, Craft World Waifu is go. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't figured out a color scheme quite yet. If I want to and if I want to use one of the like the main five craft worlds or craft my own. So we'll we'll see where I go with that. But anyway, we're gonna go ahead and move <laughs> we're gonna do uh listener mail. Um this one's we're gonna be relatively short. And uh because there's only there's only like four letters, none of them are terribly long, and uh we'll we'll get through that and then we'll hit we're going to break this into into two parts because this book is actually three codexes in one, and codexes two and three are shorter, so we're going to save those for our next episode. And for all you Gene Steeler cult fans out there, I'm sorry. Um, we'll get to you well, eventually. Well, well, maybe we could do Eldar, Gene Steeler, Eldar, something like that. Break it up. Oh, I don't... Hey, we we could. We could. We'll see what happens. Especially we'll what with happens. Uh, Richard being gone today, we couldn't do Gene Steeler. Right. Cults. That, that wouldn't have been practical. So we're going to go ahead and do... We're going to focus on the Craft World section of Codex Eldari today. Uh, but first, as always, your listener mail. And if you want to know how to get your letter read on the air, we'll tell you how at the end of the segment. So our first one is from David Williams. And... David said, given the cost of the tournament pack and its shelf life, do you think tournament organizers should require attendees to bring a copy? Also, are any of the missions especially good or bad for tournament play? Thank you and keep up the excellent content. Um, so I will say the cost of the tournament pack, you you look at it as a player and you're thinking, oh man, I got to spend like, what is it? Like 30 bucks for Nockmund? There we go. It's $40. Yeah, so... Okay, so $40 seems like, yes, that is an expense you're going to have to pay. Uh, but there's a couple of things to keep in mind on this. First off, you're going to be using, especially the points side of that book, a ton outside of tournament, like outside of attending tournaments. You're going to be using the points in there a lot. Um, so you will definitely want to have that available uh, and I know, like, there will be people say, "Well, I can, I'll just use Battle Scribe." You always want to have paper backup to go to because Battle Scribe sometimes has errors. Like it happens. Uh, there have been cases of that where somebody did all their points in Battle Scribe or Army Builder back in the day, and then brought it to a tournament, and then afterwards it just discovered no, but they got like there was an option that wasn't properly calculated by the software, and it was wrong. So to be fair, the, the GW one has oh, issues. Don't as get well, me started. So, <laughs> so uh, no, the G, I wouldn't recommend the GW app at all. It's good to have your paper backup. Yeah, having paper backup is important. Also, um, having one 
mission pack that you can take from event to event to event is very nice to have. You can write notes in it. You can, like, you'll have your own copy that you can, like, mark for your army, like, put posties in it or, like, scribble in the margins, whatever you want to do with it. Um, also, there's another cost that you might not think of being a, an attendee, and that is the cost of, if you don't bring the tournament pack, then somebody's got to print all the missions and all the maps and all the event, the tournament rules that are in the match play section of that book. And if you're not bringing a book, that means the TO has to be expected to do it for all their players. And depending on the size of event, that can get, that's a not a small chunk of printing. As somebody who's done printing mission packs, you know, back even back when it was standardized, like ITC mission packs, where it was just a document I could download, maybe throw my own logo onto it, and well, like maybe add a couple of pages that were like event specific notes, things like that. It's not inexpensive to print that many copies, and you need to have extra copies because people are going to lose their their sheets and everything. It is much simpler to just be able to print out a set of scoring sheets. And just say, refer to, like, we're going to be doing, round one, we're going to be doing this mission. Round two, we're going to be doing this mission. Round three, we're going to be doing this mission. Like, you, that's all you have to say. So much easier on the tournament organizer. And having your own, the other thing is, if you're getting into competitive play, if you're doing tournament play, you want to have one of those books also so you can practice tournament games outside of a tournament. So um, there's just a lot of benefit to having that. Does it, is it kind of weird that in six months, like by July, this is going to be replaced with something else? Yeah, that's weird. And we're going to have to see if they continue charging $40 a book. I don't expect prices to go down on it. But uh, I do think that it's, it is good for uh, tournament organizers to not have to reprint that. And there's a lot of benefits for you as a player having a copy that is just yours. And I'll say on the second one, I truthfully have not played a tournament game since the U.S. Open because um, I didn't make it to the one in February locally, and there wasn't one I saw in, in January. Um, but from what I've read, these are just kind of improvements and slight changes to the ones from last year. And so I, I think they're good. I mean, the and like Rob said, they're, they're standardized inside the book, so you and your opponent – can read through them. You kind of know ahead of time what's coming up. Well, I mean, you should know that in tournaments anyway, even if they didn't have this packet. But um, no, I, I, I'm all for getting this book. And as long as they, if it was a quarterly book, I'd have questions about it. But if it stays yearly, well, it's going to be semi-yearly because it's every it, it's every six months. Uh, I'd still pick it up, but then I, I'd start questioning it because. Overall, it, it, it's probably good for the the I guess game having all the players have that because they're they're all on the same page so to speak. Um, but yeah, and I know it's probably to change up the game to keep it alive every six months. But if it's that, well, I guess I would say I'd rather see it at around thirty for half a year. But at the same time, I know that they have to do pay the authors, do the printing costs, do the playtesting stuff. So. It probably is and, where it needs to be. And printing costs are not like you can no. <laughs> talk to anybody. Well, it's like lot. 
printing costs are a lot. Shipping costs. I know they get, I think most of their printing is done in China. Um, printing, shipping and printing is expensive. Apparently there's been a lot of, there's a, uh, there's a YouTube a channel called Extra Credits and they did an episode recently about the, what they call the upcoming like board game apocalypse and talking about all the problems that have uh, impacted the tabletop gaming industry as far as like board game creation. And some of it is because there is a worldwide paper shortage, like game companies are having to fight each other for paper. And, and because also some of that paper is used in the cardboard boxes that are used to ship products. And with all the online, online shopping that's done these days, like paper is quickly coming to a you know to be a very critical resource and you can't print books without it which might be one reason why they're kind of pushing to have some more digital resources but that would also require their digital resources to work so yeah we're stuck with paper right now um so yeah it uh, the the books are just it's going to be what it is unfortunately but uh, i i hope I hope they can, like, maybe they will hit a point, like, maybe we can make this a little bit cheaper, especially because they're not spiral binding it anymore, like, which is probably a little bit cheaper for them. I do miss the spiral bound version, though. Those were nice. Uh, next up, a uh, letter from Dennis Leah Mahoney. Dennis writes, Hey, guys, I love your Codex reviews and getting started episodes. I'm hoping for some tips and tricks for repainting my Death Guard so they look like they just walked out of ice and snow, including Mortarian, making Mortarian's wings look like solid ice. Thanks, guys. You're the best. Keep up the good work. P.S. I mostly use brushes. I haven't picked up an airbrush yet. Honestly, I think this is something you can do without airbrushing. And the techniques I would use are... Um, first off for doing the skin, um, instead of doing fleshy skin, you, you don't want to do, uh, like pinks and warm colors. I would go with like, um, like paint their, like do the base color in like white or even like a pale off white, like, uh, either Gracier or, um, Rackarth flesh and then wash with a blue wash, like a light blue wash. So you get that like frozen, like dead corpse look on all the, the fleshy bits of the Death Guard. Um, basing wise, you, there's a number of different snow products you can use, whether it's like Valhalla and Blizzard, which is the Games Workshop version, or, and, and there's a lot of companies that provide snow products. Um, apply that liberally either on the base and also like on parts of the model. Um, also, uh, use gloss varnish in spots to like, you could even like they, they've got a, uh, like there's art coat, which is a, uh, you know, GW's like brush on gloss varnish. You could, uh, mix in a little bit of like light blue, like, uh, whether it's wash or contrast paint, like ethermatic blue mixed in with that and then brush that on. And that could give you like kind of a blue shiny glaze and i would use that same technique on mortarian's wings i would go i would base them white i would do a light blue wash um and and you could even try to do gradients of brush and and you can do all this with um with normal brushes you don't need airbrushes to do this just you brush like maybe apply a lighter lighter level of wash like 
like figure out the direction you want the gradient to go. Like maybe it's darker near his where the wings join his body and then it gets lighter up. So you put more wash closer to the body and do a little bit less and a little bit less, thin it out a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more until you get to the tips. And then um, dry brush over that with either dry brush or if you want solid, like really hard ice, which is going to be weird because his wings are very organic. So you're not going to get like those sharp edges that you would get on ice necessarily, but uh, like a dry brush with a very light blue dry brush again, or edge highlight or, you know, highlight with a, with almost white. And then again, apply gloss varnish all over those to give them the shine of, of being like solid ice and that's how I would like if you wanted to do frozen death guard, those are the techniques I would use. Basically, you're gonna use lots of blue blue washes are gonna blue washes over white are gonna be a lot of what you do, and then gloss varnish in spots and then snow effects elsewhere. Um that's that is what I would how I would go about doing that. And uh, if you want it tips on how to do like ice or snow effects, um, there's a lot of good tutorials online. Um, and you can even, depending on what you do with your basing, you can even get into using like, um, like UV resin, like water effects on bases to, to like maybe have the bot, like you could, depending on what you do with the base, you could even like have their feet like in cased in this resin again mix a little bit of blue in with the resin to give it that feel and so have it look like their feet are actually like in ice like there's a lot you can do if you really want to go overboard but uh but as far as like the basics pale base colors blue wash of varying degrees of of darkness you never want to go like full solid blue but again light blue and then just thin it and thin it and thin it as you get further out from where the the ice should be darkest and then gloss varnish and that should cover you all right next letter is from alex no last name provided uh alex writes dear perforated eloise um wow we're we're getting some interesting nicknames now (laughs) Um, once upon a time we asked for different names so we did and uh our listeners have delivered Starting with the good news, I finally gathered enough courage to go to my friendly local game store for a proper, real, genuine game. The bad news is that my thousand points of word bearers took a beating that would make a World Eaters pinata party jealous. I was playing against Necrons, and my opponent was a great guy, in case he listens, but I spent most of the game trying to get rid of a 20-man blob of warriors. At the end of the game, I was out of position, most of my beloved army dead, my cultists were also dead, and it was pretty obvious how things would go was my list no good is trying to wipe 20 warriors too big and ask for a thousand points or should i blame games workshop for not making my power fantasy easy to achieve Uh, my list was a dark apostle warlord obviously with acolytes master possession 10 cultists eight ranged chaos marines seven close combat chaos marines five melta terminators with power claws and power fists venom crawler two obliterators Uh, Given that this was my first proper game, it's possible that I was just outmatched, but my ego insists that I try to find other reasons. My opponent did know his way around a resurrection orb and was an absolute gentleman, just in case my sarcasm goes unnoticed. Thank you for your podcast, Alex. P.S. You all seem to be like, you all seem like lovely guys and very knowledgeable, but if I hear Craftworld Waifu ever again, I throw my phone into a duck pond, sell my (laughs) army, use the money to buy a plane ticket to the Netherlands just so the Hague can hear about what's going on. Love the podcast. Keep it up. Well, first off, Alex, I'm sorry. Craftworld Waifu is a go. Um, 
Games Workshop made that happen. Blame them, not me. I just, I threw down the gauntlet, yes, but it was like, if I end up getting models, which I surely won't, and then Games Workshop said, no, you surely shall. So um, it's their fault. Blame them. Completely blame them. Uh, But um, as far as your main question... Were was was trying to wipe twenty warriors too big an ask for a thousand points, or was your list no good? Um, your list for a thousand points, I think, was fine. The problem is, I think it is a big ask, and the reason I say that is there's actually an article on Goonhammer. This is an article from November eleventh, twenty twenty, so it's a, it's a little older. It's from the early days of ninth edition, um, and obviously there have been new armies since then. But one of those that is not a new army is Chaos Space Marines. So you're already a bit down fighting a ninth edition army with an eighth edition one. But uh, this entire article is called Hammer of Math, Killing Necrons. I'll link it to the show notes. Um, This week's Hammer of Math takes a look at what is likely going to be a significant challenge for many armies killing a block of 20 Necron warriors. And they did the math and they graph it out. Um, For example, if you are using guardsmen with rapid fire las guns to kill 20 Necron warriors, to do it in a single attack with having a 100% probability of success, it will take somewhere between 150 to 200 guardsmen firing all at once at that one (laughs) unit. And, And... the the issue there is after each of those units attacks, you're going to get reanimation protocols. So uh, that's why it's going to take nearly 200 models. That's not 200 shots. That's 200 models firing. Um, in, uh, Primaris Intercessors, which would be one of the closest things they have listed here to Chaos Space Marines, um, with an auto bolt rifle, it required uh, not quite 70 intercessors to kill 20 necron warriors that that is the that is the single like the best case scenario the worst case scenario was somewhere around 90 uh standard space marines uh best case is around 90 worst case was 150 (laughs) so you your list i i i hate to say it just did not have the numbers or damage output to deal with a 20 uh, model brick of warriors. So what I would say in that, the other thing I I will note about this, like some of the things you point out, I have Melta Terminators. Because Melta Wounds don't spill over to multiple models, those don't help against warriors because those five Melta Terminators are going to kill like five warriors. Maybe, if you hit. Like, the ranged Marines are going to kill eight. And this is assuming, like, you, let's say let's see, you hit on threes. You're going to wound on fours. They're going to save on fours. So, like, your eight Chaos Marines range. Let's say they all have bolters. They, they probably have, you probably have, like, plasma guns and autocans. Doesn't matter because, again, multi-wound mo- guns don't matter against warriors. Um, your eight ranged Marines are going to kill. You're going to hit. Let's see, if you've got 16 shots, you're going to hit probably with 12 of them. You're going to wound with about six of them. They're going to save three, and then they'll probably get back one or two guys after that. So it's just the weaponry you have is good against a number of things, especially at 1,000 points. But a brick of 20 Necron Warriors is a huge ask for any of these. I'm like, the armies that are going to succeed at doing that is going to be things like 
A 20-man unit of Skatari Vanguard using their stratagem to, like, rapid-fire their guns. And then they can put out, like, something like 80 shots? Something like that. Oh like, my. that, at that point, yeah. It's like, there are armies, like, Drukari, Drukari, uh, Admech, Tau, at this point. Anything that can also do mortal, mortal wound output, because then saves don't matter. Like, those are the kinds of things... I'd even say, like, custodes, if they got into close... Like, if you had a, enough units of custodes to get into, like, close combat, um, you you could probably cut through unit... You know, a, a blob of, of 20 Necron Warriors. But, like, at, at a thousand points, and with having your units kind of split out like that and kind of try to take all comers, like, the Venom Crawler, the Obliterators, the Melta Terminators, those are not really going to help against Warriors because you don't... This is a case where you need pure volume of fire, and and you, this list just doesn't. But there's a couple of things that you point out. It's like, at the end of the game, I was out of position. That's... And I think you know... You realize the tactical error you made is there's a unit of 20 Necron Warriors out there. I'm going to go kill it. Oh, no, I've pulled myself off of the objectives, and I'm not accomplishing accomplishing what I need to accomplish. Therefore, it's like the best thing you could have done is pick at everything around that and then leave that one unit of 20 warriors. Like, let him have that objective. Let him have whatever he's doing that. Avoid it and kill everything else is kind of the strategy you'd have to go for in that case. And I don't know what was happening during the game, but if I see a blob I think is a shooty problem, and I've got a decent melee unit, or just maybe the cultist, or well, the cultist probably won't survive in close combat, but tie it up. And I mean, your your goal then isn't to kill that unit, it's just to keep that unit from really doing anything else. Right, and that's where, like, the five Melta Terminators, like... Melted like Terminators should be able to hold that unit, like just pin that unit down. And Power Claws and Power Fists, I mean, you're gonna be, you'll be killing some, and they'll be bringing some back. Um, they're only they won't be able to bring in general that entire mob of attacks at you in one go, just because of like where engagement range ends. So those Terminators should be able to like tank that, even if even if it ends up sacrificing them, you you could lock up that unit for a while rather than focusing on killing it. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dennis. It's like, you should just lock that unit up and then have everything else do what it needs to do. I mean, I don't, since I don't play against Necrons a lot, I don't know if they have a stratagem that allows them to fall back and then shoot. If so, then that tactic is not as effective, but it's a thought. And also playing the game is how we learn. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if this is your first game yeah, you're gonna you're gonna hit these situations where like, oh, did I do this wrong or was my list wrong? I think your your list is fine for a thousand points. Like you're obviously working from like the the newest start collecting box they had, which was basically the Chaos Space Marine side of Shadow Spear plus a few extra things. Like you you made a good stand with what you had, and and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with with that being your first list for your first thousand point game. And it's awesome that you had a good opponent play against. But yeah, this is yes. This is going to be a this is going to be a tough nut to crack, but there are ways about it. And like Dennis said, you know, lock up that unit. Don't. This is a in kill points aren't nearly as important in ninth edition playing to the objectives and the mission is. So if you can just keep that unit from doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is shooting your other guys, then you've already kind of won that battle. 
Yeah, and that's the other thing is I've had like other friends who just start out the game and yeah, they they take their lumps the first few games they play as they kind of see how people are playing cuz I mean going through things in your head, doing math hammer is all fine, but when you get actually on the table, it it feels a lot different. I mean, I put in, a, I guess, a sports reference. It's like when you're going from like college to the pros, there's an extra speed level, like things are faster. And I, you kind of feel that way in a tournament game, even if you're, you're playing or not a tournament game, but even like a real game versus a, a mental, I, I've planned this out in my head. Like a math it, hammer it, game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one where you kind of have to experience to kind of then see what happened and revise your strategies. And like, it's already sounds like you're already going through in your mind of like, what could I do better? Don't look at it as what I did wrong as much as what can I do better? Um, what can I improve on? Um, and then go from there. Yeah, exactly. So just take it as a learning game, take your lumps, figure out what to do differently. Talk with your opponent afterwards, find out what he would have. Like if I, you know, if, Looking at, like, if if he's looking at your list, like, well, how would you how would you have had me go about it? Like, what would have been the strategy you would have used to beat you? Um, that's that's a fantastic way to learn. And if you've got if you're playing with a good player who will sit down with you afterwards and kind of take those notes, uh, you know, and give you those, that that's fantastic feedback. And that's how you get better is just do it again. <laughs> to be honest, my first tournament I went to when I had moved to Dallas, I got feedback from my opponents and. <laughs> It wasn't exactly solicited, but I, I, they were trying to help and I, I took it to heart. Like, oh, okay. I mean, for how I was built the army, I'm probably not gonna, I did not put in those changes because it, I was more building flavor than I'm going to beat down my opponent. But what they said, they were, they were generally trying to help and you might sometimes get unsolicited, um, help. Just, just take it all in and, and learn. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just and just learn. I mean, I yeah. I remember our first like our first Renegade Open was an eye opening experience. Like we brought this up before, but like going up there and playing and suddenly a new a different meta with a, a higher level of player than we'd ever played against. And we've all, we've all learned like, from like my from first events. game against my first game at Renegade Open ever was against Matt Root. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> That's a way to humble yourself. <laughs> Hey, I scored points. <laughs> you did. That that's the important thing. It's a moral victory at that point. All right. So, uh and then finally our last letter is from uh Clint Capanias and Clint writes, "So I recently bought the new Tau book and love it, but I have a problem. I play a super stealthy list, 18 stealth suits and at least two ghost keels, and it would be a crime not to include Shadow Sun as well because she is the cherry on top of my sneaky Sunday." The problem is she's Tau Homeworld Sept, and I'd prefer to play Borkon or a Custom Sept. I know I can use her, which is great, but she has to be the Warlord due to her Supreme Command rule, and has to have the Exemplar of the Kalyan trait, which only applies to the Homeworld Sept units. I love this trait, because it suits my army perfectly, but if she always has it, I can't give it to anyone else, and it's breaking my heart. The rulebook says your Warlord will have a Warlord trait, but it doesn't say must. Can I opt out of giving her a trait so I can then pay 1 CP to give it to another character i'm desperate for you guys to find me a loophole here i don't want to play the homeworld sept but redeploying all my stealth suits after seeing who goes first is god level sneakiness help 
So, yeah. Um, I know you're desperate for us to find you a uh, a, 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 a loophole here. And um, hmm, I don't really know if there is one. Um, I can hear the pages turning. I can hear I, the I'm wheels looking, clicking. I, I'm, I'm, trying, well, I'm trying to find the rule where he says, like, we'll have a warlord trait. And because I want, I want to make sure that I'm, uh, you know, applying this all properly. Okay, two, two thirty eight and two fifty one is the pages I'm looking for. On page, I'm looking at the big rule book because this is where it matters. Two thirty eight. Um, so like two thirty eight. This is for the only war missions, but it's also covered in the uh, like the various packets. Once you have mustered your army, select one of your models to be your warlord. The model gains the warlord keyword. If your warlord has the character keyword, they will all, they will have a warlord trait, which you choose now. Um, like And for the battle-forged army roster, which model in your army is your warlord? This must be a model with the character Same keyword wording. if your army has any and cannot be a model with fortifications battlefield role. This model gains the warlord keyword, and if it also has the character keyword, it w- it will have a warlord trait. This is not a this is not something where it's like you can opt out of it. If your character if if your warlord is a character, Shadowson's a character, Shadowson has to be your warlord, Shadowson will have a warlord trait. Like this is non-negotiable. Which means she will have exam- exemplar of the Kalyon, which unfortunately means you won't be able to use a stratagem to give it to anyone else. And also, unfortunately, she is Tau Sept, and the way the Exemplar of the Kalyon Warlord trait is worded, it, it does actually just specify <laughs> Sept. It, well, it specifies Sept. Yeah, when you have determined a Warlord trait for a Tau Empire character, replace all instances of the Sept keyword in their Warlord trait with the name of the Sept that your model is from. She is always from Tau Sept. And, uh, she, but she won't have the Tau Sept benefit itself. She'll just, like, I hate to say it, there's little benefit in using Shadow Sun if you're not also playing Tau Sept. Yeah. I, 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 I totally get where you're coming from. Like, oh, she's in a stealth suit and she'd be perfect. Yes, but also no. Um, it's too you, bad this you, wasn't a few editions ago where they said, oh, yeah, well, there's only one Eldrad, but each craft world could, like, if you have a custom one, you might have a really good Psyker. Just use the Eldrad model and his rules. Just change that. But no, they've, they've gone away from that. Eldrad they, is they've definitely gone only. <laughs> yeah. So, um, honestly, your your best bet as of this point is to either play Tau Sept, which is not bad. Uh like Borkon's got some cool stuff for you, and there's some neat custom sets you can build. But otherwise, yeah, um, it's like, yeah, because her it's 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 the uh, hero of the empire rule for her. If your army is battleforged, this unit's commander, Shadow Sun model, must be your army's warlord. If one of your and then if you have like. More than one unit that has to be your warlord. You get to pick between those, but since this would be the only one, she has to be your right. warlord. And like, like Morvan Vall, right? But the the one difference here is she has a warlord trait that specifically is worded to only benefit her sept. Um, right. She would need for this to really work, and we're also dealing. This is in a pre Tau FAQ universe, so keep in mind 
They could FAQ her to change that from Sept to Tau Empire. Like, they could. I'm not saying they will, but they could. Uh, and then it would... And then she could use that Warlord trait on any other Tau Empire unit, which would be the best way for them to fix it. I don't know if they're going to necessarily do that, or if they're just really saying, yeah, you should play her with Tau Sept. So... Um, just because you can take her as a Supreme Commander doesn't mean you necessarily should. And while she is thematically appropriate, she is going to prevent you from being able to do the re, being able to both play a custom sept or a, 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 playing a non Tau sept and being able to use her Warlord trait to redeploy your, your army. So sorry, Clint, there is no loophole. As things are currently worded, it won't work. Sorry. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, at least, you know, you you looked, you asked, but yeah, that that will have a warlord trait is not a, you may choose, you if it was may have a warlord trait, you'd have a point, but it is, will have a warlord trait also without, like, yeah, it's just, there's no way, there's really no way around it as, as a present, so maybe after an FAQ, so Cross your fingers for that, but until then, yeah, if you want to take advantage of her, you really need to be playing Tau Sept. And if you have a question, either out of desperation or just out of being very disapproving of us doing Craft World Waifu, um, or any other question, question, comment, want tips, advice, etc., uh, there are three good ways to get that to us. First off is email us. So our email addresses are our first names at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Denset, Richard at PreferredEnemies.com, or also our first names at PreferredEnemies.com. Second is Facebook. We are at Facebook.com slash PreferredEnemies. Uh, third is Twitter. We are at Twitter.com slash PreferredEnemy, singular. And we take uh, notes and letters from all those sources, compile them together, and read them on the air as many as we can in a single episode. Um, also, if you want to help support the show, there we do have a Patreon, although if you have the uh, means to uh, support our Patreon, we ask that you first instead use your wargaming powers for awesome and find uh, charities to help with, whether in your area or worldwide. I hear there's a lot of people who might be needing help in Ukraine right now, so I uh, just want to put that out there. Um, but after after helping your fellow people, you still want to help us with the show, and your help does help support our hosting costs, our recording service costs, keeping our microphones up to date, getting us to events so we can cover them, which we are going to really start doing again this year. Um, Yay! And actually have already with you attending the uh, the Austin event, or was that last year? My God, time is just, that was last lost year. All. I've lost all all time has lost all meaning yeah, to me. That was last year. That's just why I have done no tournaments in 2022 yet. <laughs> but uh, your your uh, support on Patreon helps with that. So that is at patreon.com slash preferred enemies. It's an online tip jar. We don't put any of our episodes behind a paywall. So if you want to help out, you can go there. And even if it's just a dollar a month, enough people put in a dollar, it really helps out. We're going to take a brief break for sponsor identification. When we come back, we are going to hit part one of our Codex Eldari review. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. 
and to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back. And that means it's time for our main topic, which is the first half of our coverage of Codex Eldari. Uh, this copy was provided to us by Games Workshop in exchange for a, a fair and honest review. Uh, so I just want to get that, make that clear that this was provided by the by the printer publisher. And uh, if you don't know who the Eldari are, I can sum it up in two words, space elves. Uh, it, now, there's way more to it than just merely space elves. But uh, basically, the Eldari are an elven, highly psychically sensitive. Like yeah, I say, elven because they are tall and lithe and have pointy ears, and I mean they look like traditional elves in space. Uh, but also, they have are very psychically sensitive. They're a very psychically imbued race, which means they feel things very strongly. Elves are extremely emo, and <laughs> the Eldari. Uh, are also responsible for the birth of a chaos god, which, in retrospect, was not a great idea. Although, I wouldn't say it was intentional. But <laughs> no, it was not. No, no, it was not. But yes, uh, long the, the Eldari are an ancient race. Uh, they refer to humans as monke, and there's a reason, because we were when they were at their height. But uh, the the Eldari race fell. Uh, they, they had reached heights of advancement they had spread an empire throughout the uh, galaxy took out the necrons yeah yeah they they were kind of important in in taking out the necrons which is why the necrons decided to go to sleep for you know a few million years and eventually the eldari started getting bored and that's one of the downsides of feeling everything strongly is when you're not feeling it strongly enough you start craving more and they started reaching new and higher levels of decadence. And if that sounds familiar, don't stop me now because I'm going to keep going. And eventually, I mean, we reached the point of like murder cults in Eldar, like in the heart of the Eldari Empire. 
And if you get tired of hearing me saying Eldari, that's because the name Eldar isn't copyrightable, which is why it's Eldari now. Um, but it does have Eldar in it. It does have Eldar in it, but it turns out if you if you add an A and an I to the beginning and end of the word, it's a completely new thing and doesn't apply. And uh, so A and preferred enemies I. <laughs> no, enemies. <laughs> Perforated Eloise. Um, <laughs> that works too. Uh, but yes, as society started uh, getting uh, a little out of control, there were a number of groups of Eldar that broke away. First of all, there were the Exodites, who basically said, uh, we're at like the far fringes of the Empire. We see what's going on. We want no part of it. We're out. Um, then as things started coming to a head, the... Uh, the craft world Eldar, and they weren't craft world at the time, but they f- they forged the craft worlds out of uh, Wraithbone and took their fleets away from the heart of the Eldari Empire and said, this is going to end badly and we will all die if you don't stop, and tried to get as far away from the heart of the Empire as they could. And the Eldari who remained were like, we're not stopping, this feels great. And then their collective output of emotion and uh, sensual decadence and overstimulation gave birth to the god Slanesh. And the birth throes of Slanesh tore a hole in the universe, which is why we have the Eye of Terror. Also, every Eldar within what is now the Eye of Terror and actually stretching out beyond that a bit was instantly slain as Slanesh devoured all of their souls and not even all the craft worlds got away. And there were some survivors who fled into the webway as it happened. And that is why we have the Drukari who never really gave up those old Eldari ways of, of sensation and decadence and and pain worship. Although now they do it to keep feeding Slanesh, so he does. So he he it they doesn't devour their souls. Uh, but the rest of the um, the craft world Eldari, the the ones who remain, um, they have basically dedicated their lives, what they have, to eventually finding a way to a to continue surviving and b to eventually defeat Slanesh somehow. And one possible route for that we're going to examine in our second episode. Uh, but f- the way the Eldar have decided to do it is the Craftworld Eldar have decided that rather than just let us do whatever we want, we are going to pick a path and focus on it. And we will just hone our, our worldview to just this thing thing and maybe you're on the path of the baker and you just learn to focus on baking bread but once you get to a certain point in that path then you switch and maybe now my i have the uh maybe now i'm on the path of the sculptor or maybe you end up on the path of the warrior or maybe you're psychically sensitive in the path of the seer and you start but it's like by kind of focusing themselves down they can work on perfecting a particular thing without just going hog wild on it and Except so for far, it's mostly gun. Worth. The path <laughs> melt a gun. You have melt a gun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you basically have the remnants, like the remnants of a dying race that can't replace itself faster than it is being killed by all the various wars in the galaxy. But 
uh, they will they will take whatever oh. means necessary to continue doing what they're doing, and they don't exactly consult with everyone else on how that happens. Well, two things. That one, they got ways around the the race dying off. Probably not the best ways. Um, but two, yeah, even though the craft worlds aren't all doing the same thing, uh, they do get together every once in a while when the, their seers demand it to try and come up with it. But most of the time, they don't agree and do their own things. Well, and also I was thinking they don't confer with any of the other races in the galaxy, too. Oh, no, no. Why no, would it's do like, that? oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that human planet over there. Well, let's just lure the orcs over there or the Tyranids over there to eat them because that way they won't be eating us. That That's it's that kind of thing that the Eldar are known for doing. But then sometimes the Eldar will show up and save the day and nobody will really understand why except the Eldar. And they're not telling anyone. Well, and then other times they will forge packs with a faction to help out drive another faction. So mm -hmm. they, they might do anything, but it's all based on what their Farseers foresee the future threads of fate to be and try and guide them as early as they can. So yeah, you can't see the reasoning because the reasoning might be something that happens a hundred years in the future or maybe just 10 days in the future. But if they hit it now, then that thing won't happen and they're happy. Exactly. And the one place they will find uh, common cause with, especially the Imperium is when dealing with chaos. Like yes. they, they do not have any love for the forces of chaos and will, fight them tooth and nail um also depending on the craft world they also not big fans of the tyranids although as i mentioned they're also likely just lure the tyranids to go somewhere else so yeah. uh, not necessarily going to be fighting we, side by side with monkey <laughs> and as we mentioned earlier not fond of the necrons either no not not real fond of the necrons necrons are not terribly fond of them I, as well i don't think anyone's fond of the orcs the orcs love everyone <laughs> Because oh, okay. it all makes for good crumping, you know. It's like, yeah, no. I don't think the, the orcs <laughs> don't really hate. I don't think they don't. Yeah, they just no. But fight. the Eldar don't care for them. <laughs> no, no, they don't. And uh, yeah, there's there's several like all the different craft worlds have their own identities, their own, their own things they focus on. So, for example, Ulthoi is the most psychically, uh, I think, empowered. Like they they have the most powerful seers including Eldrad Ulthron, who is, like, the big-named Farseer character. Also, I think they're they're the ones who watch over the Eye of Terror itself. Yes. <laughs> so so that's kind of their vigil, is, is letting... They're, like, they're the ones who are keeping an eye on what are the forces of chaos up to right now. There's Ally Atok, which they're the ones that have the, the largest number of their, their members on what they call the Path of the Outcast, which are the, the Eldari who will, like, leave the craft world, learn what's going on, sneak around and, and maneuver fate that way, and then eventually come back, which is why they have more rangers than anyone else. There's Bealtan, which is the most focused on the various warrior shrines, which is where we get aspects of of war. Um, the aspect warriors who represent aspects of the bloody-handed god Kayla Menchikane, the, uh, the Eldar god of war who fought against Slanesh after Slanesh was born 
and put up a good struggle, but Slanesh sundered Kalem and Chicane with, with one mighty blow, and the fragments supposedly all landed in various craft worlds and formed into statues of the Avatar of Cain. And so each one of these aspect warrior shrines represents one style of warfare practiced by Cain. And so the Bieltan are known for really focusing on the various aspect warrior shrines. Also, Bieltan is now a fractured uh, craft world because of something that happened that we are going to talk about in episode two of this, but uh, they are now instead of one solid craft world, more of like a conglomeration of wraithbone ships holding together very closely. There's Yandin who have probably had the most direct dealings with the uh, the Tyranids, and uh, also have lost a lot of. Um, Eldar in the process and they've come up with a solution. The other, the other craft worlds use a solution as well. But um, one thing that every Eldari has is a soul stone and it's a stone, a psychically treated stone that they carry on their person at all times. Because if they don't, when they die, Slanesh immediately gets their soul. Slanesh is like a giant vacuum cleaner for Eldari souls. And if they want to keep, Slanesh from getting their souls, they wear these soul stones, and the moment they die, their soul right up into the stone and is just held there. Which is also why they don't want to let Chaos Space Marines get a hold of their soul stones, because they'll just feed them to Slanesh. But but they will hold on to these soul stones, and the, the memories and thoughts and like spirits of of Eldar are trapped in these stones and they will use those soul stones sometimes and put them on giant wraithbone constructs and suddenly they will it like animates them and now you have wraithbone golem and uh, the andan have have done that the most because that's what they've had to do to survive i mean to be fair the imperium does the same thing when they put dead space marines inside of dreadnoughts yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And there's also the whole idea of the infinity circuit at the heart of every Eldari craft world, except for Biltan, because reasons. There is a wraithbone structure called the infinity circuit, and you that is where the souls of fallen the soul stones for fallen Eldari are placed. And the idea is that if eventually there are enough souls in the infinity circuit, then my maybe just possibly the lost, long lost, or maybe never realized Eldari God of the Dead, Enid, would come to life. And it's thought that maybe if every Eldari dies, Enid will be reborn, or will be born, and Enid will be the one to kill Slanesh. We'll be talking about that more in part two as well. <laughs> Yeah, this feels like it's a teaser for another episode. There, it, it, like this, this whole intro. <laughs> it it kind of is, but yeah, we got it. You set the stage, and then we'll have oh, okay. the, the follow through. Um, and then finally, there's same hand, which is the the wild host. They're the they are the red ones go fasta uh, faction of Eldar. So they're the ones who taught orcs that phrase. <laughs> oh, they're they're probably older than the orcs, so very possibly. Maybe that's what you know. Uh their their colors are red and white, and they are known for having the highest number of jet bike riders uh than any other craft world. If I didn't like purple and wanted to make my own craft world, this is the one I would be playing. That would be the one. 
And so uh, that kind of like that gives us our, our setting. We have these these giant wraithbone ships slowly plying the galaxy, trying to manipulate the strands of fate to figure out the best way for the Eldar race to to survive and eventually strike back at the Force that destroyed them that they inadvertently unleashed upon the galaxy. So there's a lot of I think there's a lot of survivor guilt built into that, but also they're trying to clean up their mess. They they are they are and. They have a very strained relationship with uh, their dark cousins, the Drukari. Um, it's they're they're not fond of them, uh, but it's also one of the reasons why the Drukari don't allow psychers is because they're they don't use soul stones, and psychers would basically be big antennas to the forces of chaos. So there, there's very much an, uh, an uneasy detente at best between them, which also teaser for next episode. And so that gets us, I think kind of sets the stage. And now we can look at the army rules themselves. Now there's a couple of factions that we have not talked about, uh, such as the Harlequins and the Inari, and we will be, but that is part two right now. We're going to focus entirely on the Asuriani, which is the other name for the craft world Eldar. And, and note, we will not be talking about the Exodites anymore because they don't have models, a codex, and haven't been around since, like, second edition. Right. Yeah. It's, <laughs> can't imagine why we left. Yeah, it's like, eventually what? you'd think they'd, they'd do an Exodite book. Yeah, don't you want, like, elves on dinosaurs, like, hitting things with spears? Yes. <laughs> yes. Don't you want that, that in your space bad. game? <laughs> <laughs> it would not be the weirdest thing in the space game, so. No, that That's true. So, um, Asriani detachments are pretty easy to build. Uh, it's, uh, every, everything that is either has the Asriani keyword or is unaligned. You can only have one Autarch, which is basically their space marine captain equivalent in yeah, a detachment. It's kind of been the main thing. Like Tau has that and other groups have, it's like whoever's your top commander. No, just one of them. That's it. Right. Uh, most Eldari units will have a craft world keyword that is the equivalent of their like chapter, sept, legion, etc. Beyond the the rules for constructing a, a detachment, and you know, again, troops are obsec, all that stuff. Um, there's a few rules that all the Asriani are really going to have, or that they reference that are going to be important. The two biggest ones are battle focus and strands of fate. Uh, Battle Focus is an ability they had in their previous codex, and it was basically they can shoot when they advance without like without penalty uh, for assault weapons. And that is, that is still the case. The unit is eligible to shoot in a turn in which it advanced, but if it does so until the end of the phase, models in this unit can only make attacks with assault or pistol weapons they're equipped with, and when resolving those attacks, the unit is treated as having remained stationary. So you can't do heavy weapons with it. Um, they really don't have much in the way of like rapid fire. It's pretty much all either assault or heavy in this army yep. or pistol. There are a few, few cases of pistol. And then the new part is this is worded in kind of a complex way. So it just bear with us in your shooting phase. After the unit has finished making its attacks, unless it fell back or advanced this turn, the unit can make a battle focus move when it does. So roll up, Roll 1d6. Each model in the unit can make a normal move of up to a distance in inches equal to the result, as if it were your movement phase. 
A unit that makes a battle focus move cannot embark within a transport model at the end of that move, and until the end of the turn, such unit is not eligible to declare a charge. A unit cannot make a battle focus move if it arrived at reinforcements this turn, and a unit cannot make more than one battle focus move per turn. In addition, if a unit makes a battle focus move and any of its models wish to move over any part of an area terrain feature, subtract three inches from the distance models and that units can move when making the battle focus move to a minimum of zero. The penalty applies even if every part of that area terrain feature is one inch or less in height, but is not cumulative with other penalties that area feature may impose. So, you basically can advance after you shoot... Yeah, it's moving your normal advance thing to a later phase. Right, but with the other restrictions of you can't battle focus into a transport, so you you can't, like, on your turn, pop out of a transport, shoot somebody, pop back into the transport. And if you try to do it over terrain, it's really hard. (laughs) Like, you lose a lot of movement. And considering your average, the typical roll on a D6 is going to be about like three to four, it basically means you cannot, barring exceptional rolls, you cannot use this to jump like in and out of terrain. Right. I mean, you can hope if you had a small enough squad to don't go in and out, but if you're behind something, come out to the side and hope to get back. Mm hmm. But that's probably your your best. And like you said, Rob, it probably you'd have to hope for like the fifty percent chance of rolling a four, five, six, or a thirty three percent chance of getting that five or six. But you would want to get that high number to move back if you wanted to do it that way. Or it also might be a repositioning thing, where you can move out to the open, shoot, and then advance, keeping on going where you were trying to get to as well. Right. Uh, where this is, I I see this being useful is like advancing on an objective like i'm going to move out from cover unload shots onto the things that are on the objective and then try to battle focus onto the objective yeah probably one of the most useful ways to do this if you just moved like you said if you didn't shoot them off you could charge still because you just did a normal move or if you did shoot them off then yeah use your battle focus move to go the rest of the way Mm -hmm. so yeah it gives flexibility yeah, and and that's it, it's good. It, it's it does more than the previous version of Battle Focus did. So I I don't hate it. I just just no, one of those I, things. I like, like it. Yeah, it's just there's a there are just a number of caveats you have to keep in mind, and I'm sure these were put in so that it is not abusable. Like this right. this is an ability that if it was not worded properly, would be very frustrating to play against because yeah. like. Being able to fire and fade, fire and fall back has always been like a strategy that uh, has been used over the last few editions, especially with use of stratagems. And if you could basically do that for free for all of your units all the time, that would be heavily overpowered. I think it'd be fine if Eldar had it and <laughs> you, <no> one else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, no, no. We've got enough overpowered factions right now. And I say that as a, as a Tau player, so. <laughs> no, I, I mean... I think, like you said, this is a good thing. I would have liked it probably been a little more, like maybe D3 plus 3 or something. But no, it's it it works as it is. Yeah. No, I, I think I, I think even D3 plus 3 would be would make it too consistent, too, yes. too good. It, it would kind of out – it would counter that 3-inch terrain, which, right. I mean, my, I know that's kind of <laughs> your goal. But, but I, I – 
I, I think it's important to have that restriction. And then if you do it, like, hey, you got a six, maybe you can fall back into terrain, but it's going to depend on the luck. And that's fine. The other main ability that you're going to see a lot in this army is the Strands of Fate ability. And uh, this one, actually, I misread it the first time I looked at it. I'm like, oh, this doesn't seem that good. And then, Dennis, you reminded me of no, this. No, I'm like, uh, no, this is good. <laughs> And so I looked at it again, like, okay, no, wait, this is, is really good. So, if every unit from your army has the Asriani keyword and is drawn from the same craft world, excluding models with the Onroth, which is refers to Corsairs, aka Eldar Pirates, Yar, or unaligned keywords, then at the start of each battle round, you can make a Strands of Fate roll. To do so, roll 6d6. You can then retain a number of the dice depending on the size of the battle you're playing, uh, which for most games, like Strike Force, which is 2,000 points, is going to be four dice. So you roll six, you keep four of them. Keep these retained dice to one side as a reminder of their results or make a note of them. Each instance of a dice result allows you to manipulate a different type of roll dice during the battle round as shown below. So every die that comes up as a one refers to an advance roll. Twos are charge rolls, threes, psychic tests, fours, hit rolls, five, wound rolls, six, saving throws. I will notice none of those are battle focus rolls. Yeah. <laughs> so the, so you cannot use them to battle focus six inches and get back into terrain. Before making any of the, a roll of any of the types shown above for a unit with a Strands of Fate ab- ability, if any of your retained dice have a result corresponding with that type of roll and have not been used to manipulate a roll this battle round, you can imi- manipulate that roll. If you do so, if that type of roll involves 1d6, do not roll a die. The roll is instead treated as an unmodified 6. If the type of roll involves more than one dice, then treat one of those dice is an unmodified roll of six, and then roll any other dice and add up the results as normal. I'm hoping there's a fact clarifying if you had, like, two of the same number, say, like, I had two advance rolls. Yeah, well, in the example, uh, uh, Wes is playing a strike force battle. At the start of the battle round, he makes a strands of fate roll by rolling 66. The results are one, two, two, four, five, five, because he's playing a strike force battle. He chooses four of those results to retain, deciding on two, two, five, five. Because he selected two results of two on up to two occasions during that battle round before making a charge roll, he can choose for one of the dice to just be a six. Because he also selected two results of five on two up to two occasions during the battle round before making a wound roll, he can choose for the wound roll to be a six. So you could, for each instance of that number, you can use it once. But I don't think you're allowed to, I think you're only allowed to do one of the dice. Yeah, that was my point, the clarification. Because if I had two twos, can't I just use two for two sixes and make a 12 inch charge? Nudge, nudge. I queen? think the way, the way, yeah, I do agree I know. that like an FAQ would help clarify that, but I, it seems to be written as you can, for any given roll, you can replace one of the dice. No, that, that's how I'm reading it as well, but that's why I want it said in the fact, because otherwise everyone will be like me with the nudge, nudge, wink, wink of, hey, I'll get a 12, 12 inch charges. Charge. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's still uh, having a six on one die is good, and because it, this doesn't count as your um, command re-roll. You got two chances on one die to make your charge. Right, because this happens before the roll. You just set set the value. Although with command re-rolls, I think you re-roll the entire roll. So, oh, that's right. Never mind. Yeah, Never it's mind. not like the old ones where you only re-roll yeah. one die. So you don't want to use this and a command re-roll on a two-die roll. You're right. Dang it. They're, they're, they're catching all the things I think of before I can... <laughs> 
means they are paying attention, but I still agree that they a little bit of clarification, and I'm sure that'll show up in the FAQs. Like, if I have two instances, can I use both of them in charge rule? The answer will almost certainly be no. Yeah. Or if the or can I use both of them in a psychic test? And you may be wondering why I would want to do that. When we get to Farseers, you'll see why that's not necessarily the worst idea, but it still probably wouldn't work. Well, even um, without the other stuff, I mean, a 12 on a smite's pretty darn awesome. It is. It is. Uh, the other thing I think would note is there's a weapon ability that shows up a lot in this, and that is the shuriken weapon ability, uh, which kind of replaces – gosh, I'm going to date myself by referring to the Blade Storm rule, which is <laughs> – yeah, like 6th, 7th edition. But uh, many Eldari weapons are shuriken weapons, which basically means it just peels off a thin layer of metal off of a core and just flings it forward. Um, each weapon will have an ability, each such weapon will have an ability to reach shuriken. Each time an attack is made by a shuriken weapon on an unmodified wound roll of 6, improve the armor, att- improve the attack's armor penetration characteristic by 2, which most of the shuriken weapons are already AP minus 1, so they'll be AP minus 3 on wound rolls of 6. Sounds good to me. I mean, these are supposed to, like, have a chance to go through armor, so this is, this kind of represents that. Yeah, and uh, I, with an AP minus 3, it'll definitely do that in most cases, so. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a good way, and it's it's nice standardized weapon trait across the army. So that's great. And so, uh, like, so, so now getting into the individual craft worlds, the reason why I provide those rules is because some of these will actually tie into those rules. So, for example, there's Ulthway, which we mentioned are the psyker-heavy craft world focusing on watching the Eye of Terror. Uh, Their craft world attribute is Foresight of the Damned. Um, Each time a unit with this uh, attribute is selected to shoot or fight, you can reroll one wound roll when resolving the unit's attacks. That's nice. Yeah, anything that gives you a free reroll is, like, as far as, like, your command point economy is fantastic. And just, you know, gives you consistency. Uh, each time you take a psychic test for a psyker unit with this attribute, if it's the first psychic test you take this turn, you add one to the result. Yeah, for that unit. So if you have a lot of people that just do one, everyone's pretty much at a plus one. Right, which, I mean, your warlocks, multiple farseers, things like that. Yeah, that's a huge bonus. And most of their powers go off on like sixes or sevens. So uh, you really are going to have trouble not being able to cast with Ulthway. Uh, models of the attribute have a six up and vulnerable save, and uh, they also shrug off mortal wounds on five up. That's just a very powerful set of, of abilities. Yeah, and comparing it to last edition, they got the mortal wound on a six up. Yeah, no, they the the war or the the craft world traits in all cases just got fantastic. They they all they all yeah. got huge buffs from what they had before. A lot of times they have, like, what they had before plus some other stuff. Like this one, what they had before, better, plus two others. Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah. And then, uh, like, I don't always focus on the individual Warlord traits, but this one, uh, Fate Reader, which I believe is also the Warlord trait that Eldrad has. Um, after you make a Strands of Fate roll, if the Warlord is on, if this Warlord is on the battlefield, which the Warlord doesn't necessarily have to be the Farseer, but as long as the Warlord is on the battlefield, you can choose to retain an additional die. So now, in a 2,000 point game, five of your six dice you are keeping. Yeah, very, very solid. Well, do you want to talk about the ghost helm? The ghost helm's really awesome here too. Uh, so yeah, the the relic for Ulthway, the ghost helm of Ali Shazir, 
which can only be put on an Oathway Psyker. Uh, the bearer knows an additional psychic power from the Runes of Fortune discipline. And each time a psychic test is taken for the bearer on a unmodified result of nine up. So that will not include the one that you get if it's your first power. Um, but on an unmodified roll result of nine up, that psychic power or psychic action cannot be denied. Now, yeah. if you strands of fate one of those dice, that is considered an unmodified roll. So correct, you've got a Just really good a shot. Three or higher. Yeah, you've got a really good shot of having that that power uh, not be deniable. Yeah, I really like that second part of that helm. Yeah, no, so that's, that's why I you bring really it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ally talk, as we mentioned, they are they're good about be having you know s- sneaky sneaky rangers. Um, so their attribute each time a ranged attack is made against a unit with this attribute, if the attacker is more than twelve inches away, the unit with this attribute is treated as having light cover, which is basically what they had before. Correct. Um, each time a ranged attack is made against infantry or biker unit that is in entirely on or within a terrain feature if the attribute if the attacker is more than 12 inches away then the unit with this attribute is treated as having the benefit of dense cover as well so um you're on terrain feature you're already going to have light cover if you're infantry or bike you also get dense cover which is minus one to be hit and then finally which actually i think that's what they had before was the minus one to be hit yes subtract one from the hit rolls right now they also have the uh plus one armor save as well and you can ignore any and all modifiers to the move characteristic of infantry units with this attribute and you can ignore any or all modifiers to advance rolls made for such units nothing slows you down except battle focus rolls into terrain but otherwise like nothing slows down your your movement you can move through terrain without like the minus two to your movement you can advance through it without any penalties if anybody has abilities that slow you down no they don't and then uh their warlord trait actually like because uh you can uh at the start of the first battle round before the game begins uh you can redeploy ally talk rangers or at least one unit of them and set them up somewhere else which that's always a powerful ability to be able to redeploy Biltan, uh, they also, like, they are fast in combat on foot. Uh, each time a unit with this attribute advances or makes a battle focus move, treat a roll of one or two as three instead. There we go. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Which still won't help you moving into train because you'll, you'll lose the three right away. But you're never going to just step forward a little bit. And each time a unit with this attribute is selected to shoot or fight, you can re-roll one hit roll when, resu- when resolving that unit's attacks. So whereas Ulthway gets re-roll wounds, Bialtan gets re-roll hits, so more accuracy versus more damage dealing. Which, and once again, this is better than what they had. They used to just have that with shuriken weapons. Uh, there's Eandon, uh, which is built around being tough. And oh man, their their old craft roll trait was double the number of wounds that a uh, vehicle had. Like if it had any sort of like degrading performance, just double the number of wounds it has remaining. So it always like you almost always stayed at your top branch. That's gone now. But what they have instead, um, each time a combat attrition test is taken for a unit with this attribute, add one to the attrition test. And each time an attack is allocated to a model with this attribute, if the attack had AP of one or two, worsen the AP characteristic of that attack by one. I think this is better overall because it affects more units. It's still not amazingly powerful, but it fits thematically. Yeah. The old one definitely was just 
geared towards Wraith Knights, which just came out. This, like you said, it fits it better for more because, I mean, most of their army is going to be the, the Wraith Guard. And so it mm-hmm. kind of makes the Wraith Guard even hardier than they used to be. Right. And they're still pretty, they're still pretty hardy in this one. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, even their Warlord trait fits this. The Warlord basically ignores wounds on a five up. So five up, feel no pain for the Warlord. As opposed to five up, feel no pain for an entire army for Ulthway. Right. <laughs> but that's only against mortal wounds. This is against any wounds. Oh, fair, 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 fair. My bad. Yeah. And then finally, same hand, uh, their attribute, uh, you can reroll charge rolls, and they can charge in a turn when they fell back. So um, if you like getting, st- if you like fighting, but you don't want to get stuck in, same hand's a really good one to play and fits really well with their, with jet bikes and shining spears, especially. Yeah, the other half of their old part of this was they could ignore heavy weapons on bikes, the penalty. Which, but that doesn't I, matter anymore because bikes just ignore that anyway. So, right, that's where I was going. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they have you have the ability to make a custom craft world. I won't really get into these, although I will say almost all of these were in Phoenix Rising as options. Although they changed a number of them, I haven't really like looked at like what combinations would be really solid. But it's going to be hard to beat some of these. Like, at the time they made that, we didn't have these upgraded craft world traits. And now it's like, I think I'll stick with one of the first five in most cases. Yeah, the, the first five are really good. I mean, the two that I use for my custom craft world are still in here. But one I do kind of want to call, I think it's nice if you're doing a, a action-heavy army, would be Hunter of the Ancient Relics. Units with this attribute performing an action can still shoot without the action failing. That so is if, very powerful. That is super Yeah, so if powerful. you're doing action heavy, that's a good one to have. Another one that I just like is Headstrong, which lets you advance and charge. <laughs> so those are the two I'll call out. No, it doesn't let you advance and charge. It just lets you... Oh, re-roll. Oh, sorry. They re- changed. Yeah, re-roll, re-roll the advance yeah, and my charge rolls. I, I missed Like I said, a lot of these <laughs> changed a little bit from Phoenix Rising. So if you did use a custom one... Take a look at at what they have now, because it probably doesn't function the same way. Um, As far as relics, most of the relics are... A lot of the relics are weapon replacements. There's a couple of note, though. Uh, First off, I would say Sunstorm. This is just the best jet bike ever. You put it on a jet bike character, which you've got a couple of options in here. Uh, The bear gets a move characteristic of 20 inches and his objective secured. That's nice. I was also looking up at Falsho's wing, which got an upgrade as well. Yes. Uh, uh, Infantry only. um, Gives you move of 12 and fly. But the more important part, because it already did that, is at the end of your movement phase, select an enemy unit the bear has moved across during that phase and roll a d6. On a two up, the unit suffers d3 mortal wounds. It basically gives you the swooping hawk's uh, grenade pack without having to give you the swooping hawk's grenade pack. Yeah. No, that, those are both really good. Also, uh, the Weeping Stones, if you really like the Strands of uh, strands of Fate, uh, while the bear is on the battlefield, and this can only be put on a Psyker, each time you make a Strands of Fate roll, uh, you can roll an additional D6. So now you're rolling 7. If you're playing Ulthway, you can roll 7 and keep 5. I like those odds. Yeah, the the chance of you getting getting the things that you want, if you really want to lean into that, that's where I would go with that. And the Aegis is also nice, I'll say, for an Autark if you're using one. 
yeah, two up armor and minus one damage from all attacks is is always good. And as this is an army that is a little on the fragile side, you know, because we're talking about a, a T3 army that is not in power armor in most cases, um, that anything that can make your, like, your Autarchs more resilient is not bad. Um, as far as Warlord traits, um, let's see. We've got Ambush of Blades, which uh, you select a friendly core or character from your craft world within nine inches of the Warlord. Every time they make a melee attack, you improve the AP by one. If you're leaning into Assault Heavy, you know, not a bad way to go. Walker of Many Paths. Once per turn, you can reroll one hit roll, one wound roll, or one damage roll made for this Warlord. Once per turn, you can reroll one of those, but not all three of those. Not bad, but just make sure you don't accidentally try to double roll it. Yeah, not my favorite. I'll say that. No. Uh, Falcon Swiftness, add two inches of the Warlord's move characteristic. The Warlord can ignore the effects of difficult ground tra- trait. And each time you make a battle focus move, you just you don't roll. You just move six. See? There it is. There's, there's the one you'd want. <laughs> Uh, Fate's Messenger, once per turn, when a saving throw made for this Warlord has failed, you can change the damage characteristic of that attack to zero. I, that's not I bad. like that. That <laughs> one's really like good. That one. it's like, that's the time where you see that big smoldering colden of like a big las cannon hit somebody, and they're just standing just, there like nothing happened. <laughs> right. Mark of the Incomparable Hunter, this is the one that Illic Knight, Knight Spear has. Uh, every time they make a ranged attack, add one to the strength, and uh, six is on wounds make uh, unmodified wound roll of six uh, inflicts a mortal wound on the target and additional normal damage. It's fine. It's, it, it's, it's fine. And number six, seer of the shifting vector. While the warlord is on the battlefield, each time you or your opponent spends any command points to use a stratagem, you can roll a D six for each command point spent on a six. You gain a command point. Then of course, like, you know, the, once you get a command point, you can't get more, you know, standard rules. I, I mean, I hate saying this, but that might be one of the ones I lean to as well, just because there's so much you want to spend command points on. Yes, this is going to be a very stratagem-heavy army, so anything that can help you get command points, uh, I mean, even if you take this one as, like, the irony, taking this one, spending a CP to take this one as a secondary <laughs> warlord trait might be worth it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I do like that all factions seem to have that now for these cases where, well, there's one I just really want to have, but I want these others for flavor. Yeah, now you can have two if you spend the CP on it. Yeah, and it, it's worth it, I think. Uh, in Especially in this case, there's a couple of good ones. And some, of, like I said, some of the uh, Craft World ones are very good, too. So depending on where you want to go, there's there's a lot of good ways to build with multiple Warlord traits in this army. Then we get into Psychic Disciplines. This is important because this army has a lot of Psychers. We will be skipping the first and last Psychic Disciplines because those will come up in the armies for Part 2. But for the Craft World Eldar, we have Runes of Battle, which is primarily your Warlocks. So, like, your your lesser Psychers. And then Runes of Fate and Runes of Fortune, which are the two that your Farseers will take. And Runes of Fortune, I believe, is brand new. Yes and no. I mean... It was in um, a form of it was in the Phoenix Rising, but it was something where you could replace Smite with a Runes of Fortune if you wanted. And I was like, well, why would you replace Smite? Ah, I see. I'm assuming they're all the same ones. 
But yeah, now they're just powers that you can take alongside Runes of Fate without giving up Smite. That's still crazy that one faction has three psychic disciplines they can pull from. Right. Now, I will say some of the Runes of Battle have been toned down a bit. Like, the big one that we you saw a lot was Protect slash Jinx. Um, it now only affects, say, like, the actual save characteristic. It doesn't add to save, so it does not apply to, like, invulnerable saves. That's probably better. As much as it, I'll for, own it. <laughs> for balance, it's better. It, yeah. Yeah. Conceal, reveal, uh, it just leans into the cover system. It either gives light cover or takes it away. That's one thing about the Runes of Battle is all of them have two modes. One is either as a buff or as a, the other is a debuff that basically applies an opposite effect. Embolden Horrify, it either adds two to a unit's leadership and lets them fight first or subtracts two from a unit's leadership and forces them to fight last. Yeah, just it, a lot of you know, powers like that. Enhanced Drain adds one to attack rolls or subtracts one from attack rolls. Quicken Restrain lets you immediately make a move, advance, or fall back, but you can't charge or shoot. Or you cut a unit's movement in half and prevent them from performing actions. That one I could see being used a lot <laughs> just to mess with people. Oh, yeah. And then Empower Innervate adds one to wound rolls, subtracts one from wound rolls. I mean, that one's really important now, too. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these are good. Warlocks are a thing you're not going to, you won't be in a bad position if you have in your army, so um, you'll probably get some use out of these. And the Warlocks are not in a bad position in the army anymore, either. No, they are not. Then we get to Runes of Fate. These are some of the classic Eldar psychic powers. Guide, uh, reroll, like pick a unit, that unit gets to reroll hit rolls. And also I like on a lot, I think on all of these, if the psychic test is of a certain number or higher, sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's eight. If it's, but if it's at that point or higher, the range of the power gets expanded. And you don't know that what the range will be until you manifest it. So have a close unit and a far unit if you want to try and gamble on that or just play with the close units and not worry about it. <laughs> right. But Guide lets you reroll hit rolls. Um, Doom lets you reroll wound rolls. Fortune lets you uh, shrug off wounds on a well, five up. Doom Doom's a little different. Oh, um, it's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same as it was before. But it's you pick an enemy unit, and then all of your units that attack that unit get to reroll wound rolls. Aha. <laughs> because before so, it was you picked one of your units and they got to reroll wound rolls. Right. Yeah, it's been it's changed a couple, I think, last edition and this edition, they changed it to where you, you pick an enemy unit, that unit is doomed, and then everyone in your army rerolls wound rolls on them. So it's really, really good for, like, that unit needs to die. Right. So, yeah, Fortune lets you shrug off wounds on a five up. Executioner is... A smite that can then cascade into other mortal wounds. Will of Austria. Now, this one, I think you're going to see a lot of. Pick a unit and give it objective secured, automatically pass morale, and make actions without... And be able to shoot and act at the same time. So if you don't build a custom craft world that uses hunters hunters of uh like the hunters of artifacts this power will be used a lot and you cast it on a six if it's a psychic power eight or more you've got a 24 inch range on it so uh that that is just a super good ability to have 
I mean, I'll agree with you. Not for, I mean, the objective secured, I don't think is really needed because most units you're going to have on points will be objective secured anyway. But that being able to do the action one is nice and also automatically passing morale is nice. Mm-hmm. But it's good the objective secured is there too because you could cast it on a character unit and now they've got objective secured. Or Dire Avengers. Or no, just have Asherman with them. <laughs> <laughs> And then finally, Mind War, which is the classic pick an enemy character, do a leadership roll off. You both roll D6, add your leadership. And if your total is greater, then they suffer uh, mortal wounds that equal to the difference. This is one where I think rolling a 10 really does matter because it lets you roll 2D3 instead of D6 for your roll off. So you're better, more likely to get a higher roll. Yeah, and in my mind, the flavor of this is always just you're casting it, but you're just looking at them with your fingers open and going, I'm crushing your head. I'm crushing your head. <laughs> so that's what I envision on this one. <laughs> but yes, no, the, I, I would love, I've used Mind War in the past, and especially, specifically if you're character hunting. So if you had snipers and a psyker with Mind War, you can kind of more efficiently try and pink off some characters. Yeah. Let's see. And then finally, Runes of Fortune. Uh, we've got Fateful Divergence. Warp Charge 6, if you manifest, get a command point. Also going to be very popular. I want this one. <laughs> I will use this one. Oh my gosh, I love this one. <laughs> uh, Witch Strike, you select a model in this Psyker unit. So pretty much going to be this Psyker. Or if it if the Psyker unit is an Onroth, which is a Corsair unit, they can have their own Psykers. You have to select that model. Until the start of your next Psychic phase, each time the selected model makes a melee attack... If it successfully wounds the target, it inflicts a mortal wound and the attack sequence ends. I don't want to get my psychers into close combat in most cases, so... I mean, there have been builds, and Spirit Seers would be good to get into close combat because you want them up there supporting your Wraith Blades. So I can see the uses for it. Let's see. Ghost Walk. Pick a unit within 12 inches and until your snake... You know, a core character within 12 inches, and until the start of your next psychic phase, they add two to their charge rolls. Um, good for consistent charges. Uh, that I can definitely see people getting use out of that one. Uh, crushing orb, it's basically dropping a bomb on someone. <laughs> Roll 3d6, adding two to each result. If the enemy is a vehicle or monster, or if it controls, or if it contains six or more wounds for each four up, the enemy suffers one mortal wound. So drop it on a vehicle, a monster, or a large unit, and you, you've got a very good shot at getting three mortal wounds. That's decent. It's decent. It's, it's a less variable smite, I think. Yeah. It doesn't crush as much as I'd want it to crush. Yeah, with a name like Crushing Orb, yeah, it's like, that, that should just be like a full-on bomb. Uh, Focus Will... You pick a Psyker within 24 inches, and they get plus two to Psychic Test and deny the Witch Tests until your next Psychic Phase. I'm not going to poo-poo that one for that second part of it, because against some armies, having a strong deny is very powerful. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's where it's really going to come into play, is if you're playing against a Psychic Army. The thing is, though, don't you... You pick your Psychic Traits during, like... Army Construction. Yeah, so you're... But you've got the plus two, so you can hit those tens better on other tests. That is true. That is true. Cause, uh, and if I use an unmodified six, I get this two added. Well, there's an eight. You're almost guaranteed a ten. And then finally, impair senses. You can uh, select an enemy unit within 18 inches that can't, basically, they lose access to any aura abilities. Oh, it doesn't I'm, turn off the aura I, abilities, just prevents that one unit from benefiting. Okay, I would have liked it better if it turned it off, but that's eh, still decent. 
I would agree with you that it would be better if it turned it off. Like, the Runes of Fortune, like, I can see the uses for all of them. No, I don't think they're all equally useful, but they all have their roles. But yeah, like, that one, I think, would be more powerful if it just turned off an aura ability. Um, I'm going to skip the Crusade rules because, my goodness, there's a lot of it. <laughs> and it's a, it's very in-depth. As a high level, you pick which path you want your character to play on, or... There's also the ones for Yanid and Harlequin, so there is a ton to do in this crusade setup. Yeah. Hence why Rob's saying it's long. <laughs> it is. It is. There's a, there's a lot here. But yeah, it's like, basically for Eldar, you pick a unit, and you either, like, for example, if you pick Path of the Warrior, you pick, like, a Guardian, Warlock, or Ranger unit in your army, you swap it out for an Aspect Warrior unit. And the, or if you already have an aspect warrior, it gains the uh, path of the warrior keyword. And then, like, there's things that you do to earn path points. And then, as they gain path points, they get like that unit gets extra abilities. You know, showing that they are perfecting their craft in that particular path. And if a unit is not on the final step of the path, you can swap them out. But once a unit gets to the last step of the path, they can't ever change. Because that's when they've gone, like, full Aspect Warrior or full Farseer, stuff like that. Makes sense. <laughs> and that, I believe, finally takes us to data sheets. And we're only going to be covering the Eldari ones, uh, Harlequins, and Inari. Fortunately, are broken into their own sections. They're not scattered throughout, which does make this easy. I mean, I, I liked that as a separation but then i got annoyed when i was like looking for like the harlequin model i'm like i can't find them i'm like oh yeah they're they're when this one ends so it is probably good that they separated all three factions out into their own section here yeah agreed all right so like starting off let, they just hit strong with the brand new avatar of Cain model who is way nastier than his old iteration <laughs> but as should be he's a very he's a big nasty model now he he degrades, which is kind of sad, but it makes sense because he's a giant statue come to life that will I slow will down over time. I will say that other than his ballistic skill, even at his bottom rank rung, he still has better stats than his old version. <laughs> so it's like he degrades, but he never gets his, never gets to the point where he was before. Because like his old one, I think moved seven inches and had uh, like five like five attacks, and now he's his lowest bracket is eight inches of movement and five attacks like he was strength and toughness six before he's strength seven tough eight that tough eight's huge yeah tough eight with a two up four up halves all incoming damage so kind of like yes. morgan vol and he doesn't make you fear i well, know i guess that is the word for fearless now isn't it ignore our well, ignore to the to combat attrition yeah i i'd be better if it, like true fearless would be automatically they automatically pass, pass. Yeah. right but they're very careful careful about handing that out these days. Yeah, because I know I, I built an army a couple editions ago where it was focused on the Avatar, and then I just built everyone and just moved a mob, and they were all within 12 inches of him. So I was like, yeah, no, we're all fearless. And he also has an or a six-inch aura of uh, core units can reroll charge rolls. So he's still somebody that, like, you can still see they kind of intend for you to, like, move him up along with, like, assault units. Yes, oh, totally. Either with Banshees or Storm Guardians. Storm Guardians might be the a really nice choice now. Oh, yeah. Downside is don't get too close to him, because if he dies, he does ex he can explode, which he didn't do before. Yeah, that makes me sad. 
Uh, also, and his weapon is just ridiculous. What? Just strength 14 on the swing? <laughs> strength AP 14, AP minus 5, D6 plus 2 damage with a 2-up weapon skill. I mean, I mean... He's got to go toe-to-toe with knights and other big things. He real, I mean, he can. He absolutely I, can. And with, like, seven attacks... The only thing he lacks is is the no-invone saves. Then he'd really kill things. Oh, God. No, that's... I'm, they need They need to be careful about handing that out. They've been starting to hand that, hand that out a little bit like candy, and we'll see a little bit of it in this book. Yeah, that's about the only thing that keeps him under control. And then his sweeping blow... Oh, 14 swing... Like, at his top bracket, 14 swings that are strength 7, AP minus 2, 2 damage. Yeah. He's just weighed into a unit of space marines, and then there won't be a unit of space marines there anymore. Well, and the fluff, that's how he's supposed to be. He is he really, the like, thing of he, war. I, th- I think he really does, yeah, he really does match now what he's supposed to be, like the the way he's always been portrayed. Do you know his, his shooting attack, um, it makes a lion attack that you can have extra wounds on? Make a wound roll against, <laughs> oh, granted, I mean, it is only a 12-inch range, so there is that. Yes, to kind of yes. Build. But yeah, yeah, if if somebody's got units clustered together, he can yeah, being able to just draw a line is is terrifying. And they call this out on his sheet, but he is a character, so he couldn't have a relic anyway, but they also say he can never have a relic or warlord trait, so don't make him your warlord. Right. He's just there to go point at something and say go smash. <laughs> no, he's just there to point at and send him to go smash. Well, that's why I meant you point at and send him to go smash. Got <laughs> okay, gotcha. Um, then we get into the various uh, farseers, including Eldrad. Um, farseers are cool because um, first off, they all have a four up and vulnerable, which they had before because they had rune armor before four up and vulnerables. Yes. The ghost helm once upon a time uh, let you shrug off the mortal wounds from perils. Now you just don't perils. You just don't peril at like all, it. which... I mean, that'll speed which, up the game. <laughs> it does speed up the game. Also, it makes using those sixes on psychic tests from Strands of Fate far less risky. Oh, yeah. I forgot about even that part. I never worried about that, so... It's like, I can do a six, and if I roll a six on the other die, doesn't matter. I'm just that good. <laughs> And if you do happen, let's say you didn't have any dice available for psychic tests and you happen to roll snake eyes, the just power just didn't go off, but you don't take yeah. any damage. So Farseers are all very consistent psychers. Um, also, the ability runes of the Farseer. Uh, yes, has, so nice. Yeah, for each, each Farseer model in your army that's on the battlefield and not within engagement range, that's the big thing. Is like you do not want your Farseers in close combat. Um you can re-roll the dice that you roll for Strands of Fate. So if you get dice that you don't want, yeah, you can re-roll one die for each Farseer. Right. So, I mean, yeah, you can tailor-make what you want uh, to be your sixes, which I think it's a really cool combination of abilities of showing Farseers trying to guide the army even in battle. Mm Mm-hmm. No, it's it's a really well modeled ability, and then Eldrad being like the Uber Psyker, um, who can manifest three, deny two, knows three powers from Runes of Fortune or and or Runes of Fate, so you can mix and match, and still yep. also have Smite. Yep, all of them. Whereas most seen for the Farseers are, are mixing matching Fate and Fortune, right? And then he also, his rune armor, the armor of the last runes, not only does he have a four up and vulnerable save, he also has transhuman physiology in that wound rolls of one to three don't work on him. 
So, yeah. I mean, if you're like, if you're playing Ulfway, Eld- I don't want to say Eldrad's an auto take, but he's a very compelling. He's an auto take. You think so? I mean, if well, okay. If you're not going psychic, no. But if you're going psychic, you take him because even then, his his first Ulfway lets you re-roll um, a psychic test. True. So I mean, he's he's really good. It's just like Wait, I no. think at that point, I read that wrong. Each it's time not, a psychic test. Yes, so he can always re-roll psychic tests. Yes. <laughs> Gosh. And it, it, he is definitely more expensive than a, a on-foot farseer at oh, he's 145 yeah. points compared to 90. That's only like 65? No, for, uh, 55. Sorry, 55. That's hard. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. 55 points more expensive. I mean, you get what you pay for. I don't, I mean, he, with the transhuman physiology and rerolling all of your things. I might, also, he's he tough four, six wounds instead of tough three, five wounds. Yeah, the extra toughness is nice. And he, he's as tough as, an, as a farseer on a jet bike. He just doesn't move as fast. Right. I, I think he's worth it. Because the also fact he knows three while all the other farseers know two powers. Yeah, so. no, he is he is absolutely fantastic. So um, yeah, if you're playing Ulthway, like I said, <clears throat> I don't know if he counts as an auto take, but it's really hard not to justify him. Like he's just really really good. Um, the only moving on, we can, uh, well, I'll jump back. Ahead. The only thing that will we'll is go on the Skyrunner. Um, the farseer on Skyrunner also has all of the jet bike things. Of it moves. 16 inches and has ride the wind with so it advances for automatically six. You don't roll. So, right. And also, uh, we should mention the, the witch blade and singing spear in that they still do the, uh, auto wound on a two. Although the singing spear does not do it when you shoot with it, but at strength nine, it's going to wound most things on a two. Right. Well, it never auto wounded on in, or two up on shooting. It was always in melee. I'm still sad about them because they're also, they, I'm always going to wound you, but yeah, your AP is either zero or minus one. So most people are going to save. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least the Witchblade does have the minus one AP, which is not nothing. And it has more damage now. Because they used to be, I believe, one damage each, and now it's two for and, the Witchblade and three for the Spear. And no, the eighth edition uh, Singing Spear did wound on twos. Even in shooting, even oh my, I missed that. Even one. in I shooting, miss... okay. Yeah, but so they they lost that. Me. I think it's something they didn't have, then they got it, and now they lost it again. Uh, they're fine without it. <laughs> uh, then we get to our collection of autarchs. <sighs> okay, so I like some of the upgrades to the autarch. <laughs> I'm, I, you knew this was okay. So oh, I, I knew will this say, was coming. I, I okay. So I will say some of the abilities they have, like. The com- like the the space marine captain ability of a uh, six inch bubble of core units can reroll hit rolls of one. That's great. Right. That's something that autarchs really should have. Um, yes. Superlative strategist being able to use command reroll stratagem twice per phase instead of once. That's fantastic. And, well, and part two of that is they can even be inside of a transport and use that. Right. Yeah. So it's like. There's a, I mean, there's a very strong argument to be made for like autarchs being a standard part of of every army. It's like an autarch and a farseer in some combination should 
be like your like those that should be like your HQs for your battalion. Like it's very hard not to make that argument. You know, like as these two you'd have to have and then maybe a Phoenix Lord, you know, thrown in or maybe a second Farsi or something like that, depending on where you want to go. Autarchs are really, really good utility characters. They're fantastic. I'm a bit bummed at the weapon configuration issue. <laughs> and that's because how strongly did they reinforce the idea with the new Autark model they released in Eldritch Omens that like, oh yeah, we made sure to make this model completely compatible with the old parts so you could mix and match and make whatever kind of Autark you wanted, which was a huge throwback to like the old days of like sixth edition versions of Autarks where you could like give, equip them with pretty much any aspect warrior weapon or war gear you wanted. Like, you could really craft a, a an Autark that could do just about anything. Yeah. And th- they lost that in 8th in edition. In 8th edition, they just did the, well, the Autark has a sword and a fusion pistol, because that's how it's modeled. And that's the only well, you get. They they also had Autark on a separate data sheet with Swooping Hawk Wings. Which uh, they well, that, okay that was the that was the one yeah it's like no well old. no they also had a path for just autark which was your your basic I have not much of anything right and but uh, no customizability or anything yeah, like that no customizability then the autark was swooping hawk wings which is the one they used to sell kitted exactly like he was and then the autark skyrunner which was kitted like he he was exactly on the jet bike right and so. They, they kind of sold us when they released this new Autark model. They're like, yeah, and you can swap out the parts and make any configuration you want. It's completely compatible with that, you know, the, the kit with the, the wings and the sword and the fusion pistol. And then what do we get? We get an Autark who, with the, you can mix and match any of the options in the new kit, or you can build it as the Swooping Hawk one with just the, the Banshee Blade and the Fusion Pistol and Manda Blasters. Yeah, which... So close to greatness, and yet... Yeah. I mean, the only and, thing I can think of in the back of my mind is they maybe they did, because I don't have the Autark with Swooping Hawk Wings, because I never used an Autark, so I didn't want to buy that one. But yeah, if they do go together, then maybe they planned it that way, they just didn't get it to the book people on time, but... I don't think they're going to change it now. Ah, oh, God, I, I this is one. This is a case where I like. I really hope for an errata because there's one other thing I want to point out. What's <laughs> the that? artwork on the cover of the Codex <laughs> features a a Autark with swooping hawk wings and Manda blasters and a star glaive and a Reaper missile launcher. Not a legal build. <laughs> You cannot build the guy on the cover with the codex. Because you can't give a man, to, like, you cannot give the on-foot Autark or the warp uh, the warp spider jump generator Autark Manda Blasters. You can give them a, a Howling Banshee mask, but you can't give them Manda Blasters. The only way they can have Manda Blasters, Manda Blasters don't work if you don't have wings. That's a, just apparently how, unless you're striking scorpions. Okay. <laughs> striking scorpions must have tiny wings hidden in their armor somewhere because it doesn't work unless you have wings. I so, just past that, um, it's actually a good model. The rules are really good. Yeah, no, I, I, there's so much I like about the Autark, and it's just there's this one frustration. It's like, but you said, you said we could yeah. do the thing, and we can't do the thing. And then you advertise yeah. on the cover the thing that we can't do. <laughs> so it's just I, like... I, I mean, I will agree with you on all those aspects, but looking through it, 
I actually think the Autark Jump Generator is better than Swooping Hawk Wings. I think the Howling Banshee Mask I still like over Manda Blasters. I, I don't disagree. So I still probably wouldn't use the Swooping Hawk Wings or the Manda Blasters, so I'm good with all the options that are here. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's <sighs> fair. It's just... I, but you understand the source of my frustration. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, the fact that they, they did hype it up pretty strongly on the the website and like you noted about the cover i mean the art looks great <laughs> yeah just, no just, the art looks fantastic hand, hand, hand away the details yeah it's like we're so you were so close to getting this right so. no i i truthfully would love to see them to where it was back to a full altar could have any combinations as opposed to any combination for this set or this one fixed set but we know why they did it because that's how they had the two model kits set up right um, and it's this is one of those spots where the the reality of the model kit frustrates the rules, and it like it shouldn't, but it does. Um, there's the Autark on jet bike who well, basically gets over his quick weapons really quick. Or what the the? I mean, he's like got loaded with you. Yeah, you can choose a death spinner, the dragon fusion gun, just like you said, a fusion pistol, the reaper launcher, okay, and yes. all of those like the spinner. It's a blast weapon that's good for units. You've got yeah. the fusion gun or the reaper launcher if you want to take out like high strength things either up close or at range. And truthfully, uh, Star Glaive's actually not bad. I know I was like I joked around like, "Ooh, times two is always better than plus two. Well, well it probably is, but if you only have a strength of three, well, the Star Glaive's going to give you plus or six strength, while the Scor- Scorpion Chainsaw gives you five, mm-hmm. and you get multiple attacks with the Scorpion Chainsaw." Well, one additional, so I guess it's... So, at least I feel there's options. There there are options. I am disappointed that you can't give him the Banshee Blade if he's on, you know, without wings. You know, it's like, you know, but the other, the weapons that the current model can take, yeah, they're all really good. They, and they let you build a character that can do just about anything you're likely to want a character to do. Right. So, so he's a solid choice to have, well, either leading your army or hiding in a transport, commanding, being your tactical commander from inside while the Farseer is doing the fate things. <laughs> now that takes us over to, uh, we'll take a look at the Autark Skyrunner, which is basically Autark on bike, but without quite as many options. You can take a I, fusion gun or a banshee blade or a lance. I still have my illegal Autark Skyrunner because the kit comes with a lance. So that's how he was. But then I was like, Oh wait, I can use a Reaper missile launcher on him. And he doesn't have a penalty for it because he's a vehicle that back in the day. And so, yeah, right. I pried off his arm, put the missile launcher on. And well, then last edition of this edition can't use him. So I'll still have to figure out what to do with that guy. Besides, I guess, pulling off his arm again and putting a lance back on it. Yeah, and <laughs> it's a shame that this is a an old jet bike model with an old fine cast uh, update <laughs> on it. Yeah, it's like this yeah. is a kit. Like all the other jet bike characters have been updated. It's like it'd be really nice to have an I Autark mean, Skyrunner. Plastic. I really thought we were gonna get an updated one, and so maybe we will in the future. And he'll have like more arm options to give him like the because he's got like you said the f- dragon fusion gun. But it'd be nice to have him have a missile launcher again, or just something to just on his other. I don't know. I liked it, him being a heavy weapons platform and a leader. Yeah, but otherwise, he is an autark with the path of command and superlative strategist rules on a bike. Yeah, which he has all the jet bike rules. So, <laughs> yeah, and the extra toughness and wounds are really nice. So, I mean, 
if you want to have somebody zipping around and giving like his buffs around the table, he's not a bad option. And he's that I, is fair. Yeah, so I, I can definitely see a case made for the Skyrunner still being a very viable choice. And him with like Sunstorm, like the the Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Relic. Yeah, he making him obsec too, so yeah, you could get a lot out of him that way. I'm just trying to figure out how his superlative strategist will work because he can't, or like the, the transport part of it because he can't go into transport. And you're going to say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm like, well, you're right. But <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out that little thing. Yeah, no, it, it's it just, you know, standardized rule, you know, which I know something I know. we don't have a lot of these days. <laughs> and and then we've got Ariel. And Ariel's interesting because first off, he's the only Autark that's linked to a craft world. He is Eandon only. He does not have his old curse. <laughs> like he used to have, like, he used to be doomed once upon a time. Yeah, it was a very narrative thing. Yeah, because like it, was, I, it wasn't the, the spear that made him doomed. Right. And I, I think him getting brought back to life removed the curse. So spoilers yes. for stuff that happened two or three editions ago. Two, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> he was cursed so long as he was alive. He's not alive anymore, so he's no longer cursed. And now he's alive again. Yay. Yes. He re- got rebooted. <laughs> yeah. He has, this, yeah, he has the Spear of Twilight, which is an even better Starglaive, basically. He has the Eye of Wrath, which is a six-inch shooting attack at strength six, AP minus three, two damage, which, not bad if he's going to get into close combat. I mean, he, he's a close combat Autark. Yeah, and at least the Eye now is usable, as opposed to, like, a once-per-battle thing it used to be. Right, right. So, like, in many ways, he, they got rid of all the baggage that made him difficult to use in past editions. He's also interesting in that, whereas most Autarchs only affect Craft World Core, like your Craft World Core troops with their or, their Path of Commandora, because Ariel is also a former pirate or spent some time as a as a Corsair, he does have the Anrath faction keyword, and his Path of Command affects Anrath infantry as well. Also, because he is Prince of Corsairs, when you're f- figuring out how many units you can put into strategic reserves, Eandon infantry and Anrath units count as half their power rating. So you can put more stuff into reserves than you could before. Which is kind of an interesting side rule. And if you're going to play a Corsair army, he is also your only HQ option. Yeah. So if you want to do like a patrol of Onroth, you've got to take Uriel, which means you're playing Eandon. You don't have to. You can just have that patrol be your whole army, right? No. Right? You actually can't. There's, it's, I mean, okay. You, I don't think you could get the points out of it. I don't think it would okay. work. That's fair. That's fair. But you know, it like thematically, narratively, he's an interesting choice, and and the fact that they got rid of his his past problems is, uh, is I, good. I like the way they cleaned him up. I like him being there for the corsairs. I just wish spoilers there was a generic corsair HQ. Yeah, we'll get to that when we get to like troops and elites. But uh, yeah, there's. Corsairs are weird in this one. And Corsairs are going to be covered in the in this episode cuz they they are definitely within the Asriani section of the of the book. Next up are the Phoenix Lords, but we've decided that for the Phoenix Lords to make sense, we need to 
takes we're going to do some jumping around now because we're going to talk aspect warriors because without understanding the aspect warriors the phoenix lords don't make much sense in context and without and as part of the aspect warriors we're also going to be jumping back to like an earlier page and talking about exarch powers but first off yeah so for those of you following along at home don't just just go don't (laughs) yeah we're just we're gonna go we're going non-linear the strands of fate have have decided it is so um uh, first off, there are no troop aspect warriors. Once upon a time, i.e. last edition, Dire Avengers were troops. They are now elites. They have been moved out of the troop slot into elites. Elites are also crowded with aspect warriors because that's where Dire Avengers, Fire Dragons, Howling Banshees, and Striking Scorpions live. In addition, in fast attack, you've got Swooping Hawks and Warp Spiders and Shining Spears. Heavy support, you have Dark Reapers. And in Flyers, you even have Crimson Hunters. And out of the Codex, you have the um, Shadow Specters. Which are actually, I think, mentioned briefly. Yeah, in the... Like when in the fluff section, which there is a on the warp spiders fluff page, there's a not even a sidebar. It's turned sideways on the edge of the page, and it says many aspects are there of Cain, the Lord of Murder, Ebon Talon, Crystal Dragon, Slicing Orb, Blinding Claw, Shadow Specter, Coiled Serpent, Golden Raptor, these and dozens more. So theoretically, there's a whole bunch of aspect warriors we've never seen. <laughs> these are just the most cool. common, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But aspect warriors, like we said in, when we were describing the, the the fluff and the background on the uh, the Eldari, these are are people who have gone into the path of the warrior and followed it so far down that they have focused exclusively on one aspect of the war of war of Caleb and Chicane and cannot break out of it. And so they like so the Dire Avengers are like the defending troop style, although again no longer troops. And one thing that all aspect warriors have now, they all gain five up in vulnerable save from having aspect armor. So they are more survivable than they've really ever been. I mean, that's a huge, huge change because all of the, the Eldar aspect warriors and Phoenix Lords not having an invoke save was really rough. Although Dire Avengers got it if you had a sergeant with a shimmer shield, but now the shimmer shield has changed because they already have the five up invoke on their normal armor now. Yeah, the Shimmer Shield just gives the Exarch, which is, Exarch is basically a sergeant, but with some benefits we'll talk about in a bit. Um, so Dire Avengers are generally armed with a better Shuriken Catapult, which is uh, has one more shot now, because that's one good thing, is Shuriken Catapults, like the standard ones, went from 12 to 18-inch range, so now the Avenger one is just that, but with an extra shot and slightly better AP. And if the unit has a Dire Avenger Exarch in it, then uh, they can perform actions and still shoot. So Dire Avengers are also fantastic for sending to do actions now. That, that They are like your your action elite. Which makes sense. They In the previous editions, they were the hold the point factor group. Because, I mean, having right. a 5-up invone on a group of 10 was really nice. So I, I like this. Getting moved to elite and moving them like, okay, you guys aren't the defenders. You're going to be the ones going to hold points and do actions for us. So I guess that's where their role has changed. It's like they're special forces, kind of. Yeah. Uh, then we've got uh, fire dragons. These are Meltagun. I mean, we've made this joke. <laughs> it's a classic 40k joke, but their thing is they have they have the dragon fusion gun, which is 12 inches, does not have the Melta half-range limitation. You are always strength 9, AP minus 4, D6 plus 2 in damage. 
they can take flamers, but why would you? Yeah, I, I prefer taking the fire pike because it's 18 inches of D6 plus 4 damage. Right. You can take that on the Exarch, which is generally how he's modeled. Oh, I think they did have at one point a flamer Exarch model. Why? <laughs> and I mean, it, just how much they're looked at. I mean, Strength 9, you're going to wound most things on twos, if not everything. 99% yeah. of the things. And then they have a trait, if they're rolling as a vehicle or monster, re-roll your one. So you, yeah. you're going to hit. Yeah, you're you're likely going to hit, you're going to wound, you're going to do some damage. At AP minus four, unless they have an invulnerable, you're going to do damage. And Fire Dragon's new thing that they got, because they were always said they were the heaviest of the aspect armors, well, they get an extra toughness now. Yep, they are tough four, and with a three-up armor, they are very, very, they're going to be resilient. I mean, they're still going to be kind of glass cannon units, but maybe not as much as they used to be. Yeah, the problem is that, I mean... I guess all Meltas have very short range, but this is very short range. If they're firing at you, you can assault them. True, true. Um, Speaking of assault, Howling Banshees. These are fantastic. They are fantastic assault units. Absolutely terrifying. They have an extra inch of movement. They've got a four up, five up. If they uh, made a charge move this turn, they add one to their wound rolls with their Banshee Blades, which are strength four, AP minus four, one damage. Yeah. And they can charge in a turn in which they advanced. So, I mean, you're talking anywhere from, let's see. And if you get it, if you uh, strands of fate, the charge roll or the advance roll, for example, that's 14 inches plus anywhere from, I mean, they've got nearly a 30 inch threat range, like probably about 26 inch threat range. They did lose the fact that they could go and charge three extra inches. So that's kind they of... They did lose that. They did lose that, but still. I mean, they're, they've are they still got a ton of range. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also, anytime an attack is made against them, not just a range attack, anytime you make an attack against them, it's minus one to hit. Yeah, well, before it was minus one to hit when they were in the fight phase. So it's nice right, that now it's they, anytime now. Right, so they are they are fast... They are hard to hit. They are likely to make it in. And with more use of terrain on the field, there's a very good chance they're going to get into assault. If they pop out of a transport, you can't stop them. Like It's like they're going to get to you. Um, but just also, like before, they, they need to get things done quick because they, five they strength do. the they, first round is nice, but then they'll go back down to four and eh, they're not good for prolonged combat. Right. But with three attacks base, four attacks on the Exarch, a, a unit, uh, like a unit of ten of them, is just going to blend whatever, like whatever infantry they hit. And with the Howling Banshee mask, you can't Overwatch your set to defend against them. And the unit you're fighting, that you're in engagement range with, has to fight last. So I do like that they put the set to defend on there too. Yeah. So so Banshees, like th- if they are going to get in, and they are going to get their swings in, and there's not much you can do about it. Then you've got Striking Scorpions, which are traditionally the uh, stealthy assault troop, which is why they have the advanced positions, which basically lets them infiltrate. They are armed with Scorpion Chain Swords, which give them five strength and give them an additional attack. So they are four attacks each if they're using Scorpion Chain Swords. And they do have the three-up armor. Yeah, they do have three-up armor. So they're, they are not quite as tough as Fire Dragons, but they're still tougher than most aspect wars and still have the five up save. And each time a melee attack is made by a model in the unit, uh, hit rolls of six 
do more hits. And then each time you make a melee attack that targets a unit, except for the ones from Sustained Assault, uh, unmodified wound rolls of six cause one mortal wound, except against vehicles or monsters because of their Manda Blasters. So Striking Scorpions have a decent amount of damage output potential and can get up close by being deployed closely. So a first turn charge is not unlikely with Striking Scorpions. Or if you just want a, a deployed second turn charge, um, your advanced positions part, get them mm-hmm. in position. And, and Well, I know this is first turn, I guess, because advanced position you can still charge of, right? Yeah. So yeah, then, you, yeah, you, use a six from your strand. Uh, you, you've got a strands of fate will get six. You just have to roll a nice number on the other side. Yeah, yeah you just have they, to. They you have to be more than nine inches away from the enemy deployment zone and any enemy models. But with seven inches of movement, that's very possible. Yeah, they're they're still not my favorite um, melee unit, but man, they look like they can just waylay lots of hits. Yeah, and the uh, exarch can take effectively a power claw at my you know times two strength. So again, six. Uh, my AP minus three, two damage, which I, that the strength Eldari strength is the, is their probably their biggest uh, sticking yes. point because yes, like they, they're units that have buffed up toughness, but very little has buffed up strength. Uh, jumping ahead to fast attack. We've got swooping Hawks, which um, basically have las guns, but that auto wound on sixes to hit, which is nice. And uh, they can also be removed from the field and redeployed. They can basically lift up Sky Leap, which basically lets you pull them off, deep strike them in, and they have the ability to deep strike as well. They are a deep strike shooty unit. You don't really want to get them into assault if you can avoid it. I do like the fact that the Sky Leap now isn't like it was before, where you take it off the board, wait a turn, and the next turn they drop back down. Here, it's reading that you can just remove them from the battlefield and set up again anywhere else. So that makes them a lot more maneuverable. Oh, very so, very much so, and it basically just takes the place of a battle focus. So you don't even have to roll to do it; you just set them up anywhere. Uh, swooping hawks are going to be fantastic for dropping down and grabbing uh, like objectives or doing actions, like anything that requires you to do actions in different table quarters. Swooping yeah. hawks will be great for that. Octarius data. Oh, <laughs> Knockman data at this point. Oh, sorry, Knockman data. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, and then there's warp spiders. Uh, warp spiders love, you know, they've got the warp spider jump generator, which each time uh, you make a normal move, battle focus move, advance, fall back, or a charge move, until the move is finished, uh, you can move horizontally through uh, models and terrain features. They can't finish a move on top of another model or its base. I'm assuming the. Okay, and when. When the unit's bear, bear's unit makes a battle focus move, you can roll 2d6 instead of 1d6 to determine the maximum distance of models in the unit can move. If you do so, if you roll double one, the unit suffers one mortal wound. I would take those odds, honestly. That's yeah, a 1 no. 36 chance of doing a mortal wound to the unit. I would take that to get 2d6 inches of movement. As opposed to it used to be you lost a model, which is also why the Exarch or the Autarch never took the warp the ex- stump generator. It was too right. big of a, a flaw. But now even the Autarch only takes a mortal wound if they fail all that type of movement. So, right. yeah, you don't lose an Autarch by rolling double ones. Ulthway warp spiders. Shrug off mortal wounds on a five up. Just going to say that right there. <laughs> well, they are normally uh, painted black, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, they have the f- 
Uh, first off, their gun, we talked about the Death Spinner being a blast weapon now. 12-inch range, Assault D6, Strength 6, AP-2, which is pretty good. And then Blast, meaning against a large enough unit, you get all six shots per Death Spinner. And the Exarch can carry two. <laughs> and then Flicker Jump, uh, the first time in each phase, this unit is selected as a target of a charge. If the unit is not already within engagement range of any enemy units... It can make a normal move up to six inches until the end of the phase. This unit cannot fire overwatch or set to defend. So you basically can jump away. And because it's a normal move, the warp spider jump generator lets you move over things. Um, yeah, warp spiders are a very tricky unit to, to fight against. They were very, very good in uh, seventh edition. Um, I think they have a potential to be very nasty in this edition as well. And I mean, I am loving the maneuverability and also the, the problem with, again, the 12 inch range on the death spinner is people can target you for assault, but well, thanks to flicker jump, you have a kind of a counter to that as well. Right. Being able to move up to six inches can easily get you out of charge range. If you, if you set yourself up, so you're just like, just at the edge of that 12 inches, you can easily get yourself into a safe position and you can still battle focus too. You can move up, shoot, and then just be like seven eight nine inches away (laughs) now one thing i think we'll need an faq is because the battle focus move says they can move through terrain features do they still hit the do they still lose the three inches like if they move across one i'm I'm curious to see how that gets faq'd because otherwise that would mean warp spiders get around the one like one of the restrictions on uh, battle focus well, they probably can't because that's probably why they rolled 2d6 instead of d6 for the battle focus, would be my guess. Mm, okay, I can see that. But it, it is something that needs to be fact. You're right. I, I think it just on the safe, they should just yeah. go on the safe, you know, err in the side of caution and, and, and FAQ that. Um, we've got Shining Spears, which like used to be all about like focused on killing monsters and vehicles. Um, now they are just jet bike uh, aspect warriors, although still very good. Laser lances make them strength seven on the charge. Or no, I guess strength six on the charge. It's not plus one and then plus three. So, it's, so laser lances make them strength six on the charge. The star lance on the uh, Exarch makes them strength uh, eight on the charge, which is what they used to do. I mean, that's that's nothing yeah, really new. No changes there. Um, and really their only special ability besides, um, the Exarch being able to take a shimmer shield and get a four up in instead of the normal five up is, uh, aerobatic grace. Each time a range attack is made against this unit, subtract one from the attack set roll. So kind of like half of what, uh, um, Banshees get. Yeah. And there used to have a four up in against invulnerable saves. So now it's just minus one to a- attacks. Yeah. So, or hit roll. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And then um, we've got Dark Reapers, which are your heavy support missile launcher. They just got a new plastic kit. And, uh, I mean, the Reaper launchers are good weapons. 48-inch um, range, heavy one, strength 8, AP 2, uh, 3 damage, or heavy 2, strength 5, AP minus 2, 2 damage. Uh, so, you know, five of those coming at you at uh, Ballistic Skill 3 is no joke. They also have the three-up armor for having, you know, they're, they are the slowest of the Aspect Warriors at only six inches of movement. 
Also, they uh, you do not get dense cover against them, so you're never they they never get the minus one to hit against uh, targets in in dense cover. I kind of miss uh, their old one. Yeah, the old one was <laughs> just no penalties at all, which meant they could move right. and fire and yeah. So, oh, and I suppose we should do the flyer as well. Um, the Crimson Hunter, which uh, their main thing is they're armed with either star cannons or bright lances, which bright lances are basically las cannons at strength eight, AP minus four, D three plus three. And they have a pulse laser, heavy two, strength nine, AP minus three, D three plus three. So they pour out a lot of damage. Again, they add one to hit rolls and re-roll wound rolls against uh, anything with fly. They lost some maneuverability, though. They don't get to turn twice. I don't think it matters in this edition. Because that was really big when weapon facings and vehicle facings mattered. And you could only fire in your front arc. Yeah, that doesn't matter anymore. So it's an okay Well, change. there are Mechanicus flyers that can do it still. So ah, it's, I see. So I think they took it away because Mechanic, the like the Aero Raptors are a problem. <laughs> They were. That's why we're limited to two flyers in uh, match play now, is because of the Mechanicus <laughs> flyers. So I think they determined that for this edition, it was too easy to alpha strike with it. So they, I think they took it away for that reason. But yeah, basically they are fly. You know, they're supersonic flyers who are good at fighting other things that fly. So now that we've explained all the. Uh, all the aspect warriors let's talk about the things that you can give to exarchs this is the equivalent of like making somebody a chapter master or a, you know like the head chaplain or uh like giving somebody like prototype war gear in the tau army the exarch powers you pick a, a aspect warrior unit or like crimson hunters where like there's one flyer in the unit you can make one crimson hunter uh, an exarch and uh, anytime you upgrade a exar- a, you know, an Exarch to have an Exarch power, you increase their power rating by one. Depend- they gain a wound, and depending on what they are, they either gain a ballistic skill or an attack. So if they're Crimson Hunters, Dark Reapers, Swooping Hawks, or Fire Dragons, i.e. the shooty aspect warriors, they gain a ballistic skill, which means they're hitting on twos. Or if they're a Striking Scorpion, Howling Banshee, Shining Spear, or Warp Spider... They gain an attack. If you're a Dire Avenger, too bad. You get a wound and that's all. <laughs> I mean, that's fitting in my mind. Although the Warp Spider one, I mean, the Exarch has always been known. They want to get in close combat and the rest of the unit's like, we just want to fire our guns. <laughs> so I, I do find that funny. Now, all of these upgrades, like the cheapest one is 10 points. Most of them are in the 15 to 20 point range. A few are 30. And the thing I'll note is you don't have to take these upgrades on your Exarchs. These are no, just you don't. bonuses you can lay on top of them to make your Exarchs even stronger. Right. And some of them are terrifying, I will absolutely agree. Like, for 30 points, you can give a Crimson Hunter the Eyes of Cain. Each time this model makes an attack that targets an enemy unit that can fly, the attack automatically hits. I mean, that's a 30-point one probably for a reason. <laughs> but it's worth that 30 points if you're, tar- if you've, if you're targeting other flyers. I mean, strafing assault and because for them and swooping evasion makes you have a crimson hunter with an invone save because that's the only air quote aspect warrior that did not get an invone save. So hey, if he ejected those- from the plane, he the, he would have an invone save. Okay. He's wearing aspect armor inside the cockpit. I'm sure. Okay, 
So of those, I would probably take Swooping Evasion or Isaac Kane as, as one of those, but... It's going to depend on, like, what you expect to face. Like, if you're yes, going it, somewhere like, like, oh, there's going to be a lot of Drukari in flying transports, oh, yeah, I'd take Isaac Kane. I'll just shoot them down every all day, every day. But, yeah, most, like, Swooping Evasion is probably the most generally useful. Um, dire Avengers can take Defensive Stance... Shredding fire or stand firm defensive stance is you can shoot at models in engagement range. Yep. Which is nice if you're going to have them stand and, and like expect them to get charged. Yeah. Or shredding fire, which triggers the shuriken ability on a five up instead of a six for 25 points useful. for the Exarch only. Oh, is that Exarch only? No, it says a model. Oh, no, no, I take that back. It's not. It's yeah. not. It's for the entire unit. So Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 decent. If you're going to have focus your your dire rangers to be more shooty support, then yeah, that would be decent. And they're they're uh that gets them to AP minus 4 when they shuriken because they're they're shuriken yeah. catapults right <laughs> minus 2 already. Hope you hope you have some invoke saves. <laughs> yeah, true. Or stand firm, um, the unit... Okay, this is the one where I think if you're going to take Dire Avengers, this is almost the auto-take. Yes, I agree. Yeah, they gain objective secured. Uh, if they already had objective secured, then they count as two models, which I would assume the only way you could get that is if somebody used the power that makes you have objective secured, like the psychic like power. Psychic power or Asherman. Oh, true. That's true. That's true. So it's like, I, it's like, it's, it's weird that this is an ability that you buy during army construction, but it also, like, it, it's the way it stacks with temporary obsec is weird. Yeah. And I think they might want to rewrite, like, rewrite that. And then but, plus I one mean, leadership, which is decent, but the, the, giving them obsec. Yeah. Obsec's good. Have it counting as two with Asherman around. And then the leadership, they have an eight. You know, this bumps it to nine. If they're on Asherman, they'll have 11. Yeah, that no, that's... Yeah, you can make a brick of Dire Avengers that goes nowhere. And that's fantastic. Well, until they get shot off the board, but... Yeah, it's well, fair. Because they, they don't have reanimation protocols. Oh, no, they do not. <laughs> <laughs> Warp spiders who do not have a Phoenix Lord get either Spider's Lair, Surprise Assault, or Web of Deceit. Um, surprise Assault, which, by the way, uh, Warp Spiders can also Deep Strike. Surprise Assault lets them have an extra shot per death spinner. Uh, Spider's Lair lets them... Okay. Uh, go ahead. Uh, one additional... It says one additional attack. I guess that is just one more shot. Not worth it. If it's just with each shot, death so. spinner it's equipped with. So if the unit was set up, you're setting prepared assault, or setting set an assault, and contains a Warp Spider Exarch when the unit is set up on the battlefield for the first time until the end of the turn. Each time a model in the unit is selected to shoot, it makes one additional attack with each death spinner. So it would yeah, be not one additional Six. shot. It doesn't shoot twice. Yeah, yeah, not, no. I don't like it. Um, see, Spider's Lair lets you uh, turn a terrain feature into webbed difficult ground. Uh, for enemy units, and anytime an enemy unit moves through that unit, they take uh, D3 mortal wounds on a two-up. Okay, that one is funny. I, that I one's like nasty that one. and mean and funny. Yeah. And then Web of Deceit lets you once per game sky leap instead of doing a battle focus move with your warp spiders. Uh, just, that's the one I think for me is most useful and gives them just tons of maneuverability because like you could be fighting over here. You might, people might run away from you. Well, I've got a lot of movement, but I want to go over there and hassle those guys now. So yeah, no, I think that's probably the best one. 
Let's see, shining spears get expert lancers, heart strike, or lightning attacks. Expert lancers gives uh, you plus one to hit if uh, when your unit charges. Yay. Heart strike <laughs> uh, makes the exarch cause mortal wounds on a five up in addition to their normal damage. That's useful. And lightning attacks is each time the unit makes a consolidation move, it can move an additional six inches. So they get a nine inch yeah. consolidation move. Uh, useful. I, truthfully, I probably wouldn't take any of them, to be honest. And then I cry because yeah. you're right that they, they, they just feel like assault jet bikes. Which are like only lightning good in the first attacks. Line of combat. Yeah, lightning attacks. I could, what I could see with that is using it to tie up other shooty units. Fair. Like I'll, I'll kill the the screen. I get through the screening unit you have, and then I consolidate nine inches into you. No, that that's that is super fair. And then also, if they move back, well, you get a charge roll or charge them, which that's your bread and butter is charging. So. Right. So, I think I think uh, lightning attacks is probably the best one for them. But I do feel like they've lost what their old role used to be. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Howling Banshees get Graceful Avoidance, Nerve Shredding Shriek, or Piercing Strikes. Um, graceful Avoidance is uh, units have a f- you have a four up invulnerable against melee attacks as long as you have the Exarch around. Nerve Shredding Shriek. Each time the unit finishes a charge move, you can select an enemy unit with an engagement range of the unit's Exarch and roll a d6 on a two up. They suffer a mortal wound and minus one combat attrition tests. If it didn't have to be in like you're gonna have to make sure that you can get the Exarch into clo- into engagement range, which you probably will. But well, that one's you, a little bit. You messy. want to because the, the Exarch, yeah, you'd have one plus one attack anyway. You want that Exarch in, in yeah, which range. is five attacks plus if you're using like mirror swords or something like that. Yeah, you definitely want like to do mirror that. Swords. And then piercing strikes add one da- to the damage characteristic of melee attacks made by the unit's Howling Banshee Exarch model. I think that's the that's the one. That's the one you take. If you're using mirror blades, yeah, executioner. I don't know. I'd, I'd probably. Go or if you just used it, like you could just take them stock and just give them the standard, yeah. like banshee blade. A two damage banshee blade's not bad. Yeah, but mirror swords but for, would give them uh, like ten attacks, and then two damage two on damage each of those. Each. Yeah, yeah, that would be worth it. But if you're on the executioner, I'd probably lean towards one of the other two. Uh, See, striking scorpions get crushing blows, deadly ambush, or scorpion sting. Crushing blows each time the unit's striking scorpion exarch model makes a melee attack that targets a non-titanic unit. If a hit is scored, it automatically wounds. That's where the scorpion claw could be really nasty. (laughs) Just punch a tank to death. Deadly ambush. um, While the unit contains a striking scorpion exarch model and is wholly within area terrain each time a melee attack is made by a model in this unit add one to the attack hit roll and improve the ap by one uh it really it depends really on how you deploy them and and where you're going to be using them it's okay i think crushing blows is better I, i mean between the scorpions and the um Warp spiders, you could kind of deny your opponent some area train by, oh, do you want to fight these guys and hear where they're better or go through this building that's webbed? So, I mean, the problem with the deadly ambush is it requires you to stay, like, stay and fight in that area train piece. (laughs) I know. So it's just like, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to spin the positive on it. (laughs) Yeah. And then Scorpion Sting just makes the Exarch's Manda Blasters go off on a five instead of a six. Not worth it. And at 30 points, an upgrade. Not so not worth it. (laughs) 
I've never been super fond of Manda Blasters, but some people really they, like them. I, I don't like it much. Dark Reapers, uh, Bringer of Death, Focused Fire, or Reaper's Reach. Bringer of Death says, you know, if, like it depends on what the Exarch's equipped with. If they have a Reaper Launcher or Shuriken Cannon, uh, they get an additional attack with that weapon when they shoot. Or if they're equipped with an Eldari Missile Launcher or Tempest Launcher, the targets don't receive any benefit from cover. Not bad, but not the one I'd take. Uh, Focused Fire says the Dark Reaper Exarch model gets plus one to their wound rolls. Also not bad, not the one I'd take. Reaper's Reach, the one I would take. While the unit contains an Exarch, models in the unit don't suffer the penalty to hit rolls incurred for firing heavy weapons in the same turn that they moved. It's a shame they have to spend an extra 15 points to get it. But that's the one you... If you take Dark Reapers, you need to take this. Yeah, because then that gives you the mobility to move them around while still firing. Without exactly. Yeah. And it gives your um, Exarch plus one ballistic skill, so he's hitting on twos. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fire Dragons, take Blazing Fury. Stop moving on. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we should Blazing Fury, for- while, you've got an, while you've got an Exarch, add four inches to the range characteristics of weapons in the unit. 16-inch... Dragon dragon yes. fusion guns? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Remember how I said 12 inches, you're in engagement range? 16, you're not. Well, until the yep. next turn where they move forward like six inches, then you are again. But, but see, they, don't mind the details. You you fire and then you battle focus away. Fair. Fair. Otherwise, you have burning heat. each When the unit contains an Exarch, each time a model in the unit makes a ranged attack that targets a unit within nine inches, which is not where you want to be. <laughs> If a hit is scored, the attack automatically wounds. You're already practically going to automatically wound, so d- right. don't. And then Dragon's Bite. Each time the unit's Exarch ma- model makes a ranged attack that targets a vehicle or monster that's within half range, also where you don't want to be. <laughs> um, either add two to the damage if it's a fusion gun or fire pike, or add one to the damage if it's the flamer, which you should never take. <laughs> I mean, the extra damage is nice, but you should have four other guys also pouring in that kind of damage. Just take Blazing Fury. It's, I know. There's no reason to take anything else. <laughs> I, I'm agreeing with you, but for completeness, because we're reviewing it, yeah. we have to speak to the other two. And then take right. Blazing Fury. And then take Blazing Fury. <laughs> and then finally, Swooping Hawks. Uh, rapid redeployment. Uh, they can shoot in which they in turn when they fell back, so long as they have an Exarch. Suppress, which if their shooting was better, that would mean something. But it's it's okay. Yeah. Um, suppressing fire. Now this one, on the other hand, in your shooting phase after the unit has shot, uh, you can select an enemy unit that was the target of a ranged attack made by the Exarch, and roll three d six. If it's greater than that unit's leadership characteristic, which three d six on average will beat most leaderships. Until the start of your next shooting phase, the enemy cannot that enemy unit cannot overwatch, set to defend, or perform any actions, and if they were already performing an action, it fails. <laughs> yeah, I think swooping hawks have now gone from not being really used much at all to they're gonna be the harassing unit. Yeah. Being able to jump to wherever they need on the battlefield and with if you take suppressing fire, you can start disrupting other people's actions. Right. Or then finally, winged evasion. Each time the unit is selected as a target of range attacks, if it contains an Exarch until the end of the phase, um, subtract minus one to be hit by ranged attacks. No, suppressing fire. No, suppressing fire. Suppressing fire is so good at messing with other people's plans. 
And in a competitive game, or anything, like depending on what the action is, that like it can always be useful. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of times stopping an action, a lot of players will just have that one chance to get that action off before they need that unit to do something else. Or if they do have that unit do the action the second turn, that prevents that, that, that's like if you go back to action economy, that unit's pretty much done nothing for a turn other than stand there and, I guess, get scared. Right. (laughs) And considering that you can do that, like, you can move them up suppressing fire in the shooting phase and then sky leap away so you're not even there for them to return any fire at <laughs> like like i said harassment unit yeah like you deep strike them in within nine inches of somebody unload on them oh, no i don't think you can battle focus you can't battle focus if you came in that turn like a reinforcements can't battle focus they've got what 12 or 14 i think only 12 movement um 14 so they got 14 a- movement just put them in your deployment zone and move them to where you need. Also, the hawk. Also, their weapons are assault. So, fourteen plus advance. Oh, then you can't. Bat, then you can't sky leap them away if you advance. But right. But you've got so many options for the <laughs> for mobility. Suppressing <laughs> fire. Suppressing fire is so good. And the thing is, you could just deep strike them into suppressing fire somebody, and you don't even have to do. That's the thing I like is you don't even have to do damage to them. You just have to have targeted, have the exarch target that unit. Well, and if you're within what eighteen inches, have a warlock, have them horrify you, so your leadership's down. Yep. Warlock on a bike. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of things you can do to mess with people with that. So the Exarch rules, some of them are on the very overcosted side, but there's some of them like I see is like, you just take this. This is just, just roll this into the cost of the unit because they really need to have it. I mean, it like you noted, it will make the units cost a little bit more, but some of them are definitely worth it. I, I definitely think all of the um, melee ones, taking something from there is worth it just for that extra attack. Agreed. Um, and but the, the extra skill wound. ones are nice. Yeah, and the extra wound for all of them is nice. But yeah, I, I, I mean, even though they're a little costly a little bit, I, I do think I'd take them on. Maybe not all, but most of my aspects that I bring. Right. And then this gets us over to the gets us over to Phoenix the Lord. Phoenix Lords. Finally, the so big we're back to the HQ <laughs> section. All of these have the favorite of Kane rule, which gives them a four up and vulnerable. And they can never lose more than three wounds in a single phase. And they can also never have a relic or a warlord trait, kind of like the avatar. But the, like you would never take these as your as your main warlord HQ anyway. These are like a third HQ slot. Like you take your Autark, you take well, your first year. In in the past you kinda had to. I mean, in the past, all of them had um rules. And um there's even at one time where if um Asherman was in the he had was on your field. He have like he three had, warlord traits or something. I don't think it's three, but he but he had to be your warlord. So it it's kind of strange to see him kind of pushed back yeah. into the hey I'm only a guy, but it it kind of moves in with well your elites aren't troops anymore. Their dire avengers are moved to be elite. So yeah, you just go lead them, not everybody. Right. Yeah, Asterman, back in 6th edition, he always had D3 Warlord traits if he was your Warlord, and he had to be your <laughs> Warlord if he was in your army. So, far cry from that these days. Yes. All of them have the same stat line, 
And that's actually something they've had for kind of a, a long time has, has been a thing. I, I will disagree. They, they don't all. They all have the same base, but one's a little different. Fuegan. Oh, because strength and toughness. Yeah. Yeah. So almost all of them are <laughs> move seven, weapon and ballistic skill two, strength four, tough four, six wounds, six attacks, leadership nine, two up armor, four up invulnerable. Fuegan has strength and toughness five, and Asserman has a three up invulnerable. They all have battle focus, so they can all move around like all the other Eldari. Really, the main difference on all, like, all of them will have an ability. Asterman's ability is he has a three-up invulnerable save. Baharoth, when he consolidates or make a battle focus move, you can skyleap with him. Fuegan has the same assured destruction that uh, Fire Dragons have, but he also has, um, when he's lost any wounds, he adds one to his strength and attacks. Um, Czar has storm of, or has acrobatic, which is the same thing that, uh, Banshees have as far as being harder to hit. Carondras has, uh, the same sustained assault ability that striking scorpions have. Maganra has a couple of abilities. He has the inescapable accuracy, which is no dense cover against his attacks. And each model destroyed by him is counted as two models during the morale phase. And then otherwise, all of them have the following ability that is, they're all variations on a theme. Hand of, they, like, for example, Asterman has Hand of Astrian, but they, all of these do the same thing. While a friendly, insert aspect warrior keyword here, so Dire Avengers, Swooping Hawks, etc. Unit is within six inches of this model, add two to the leadership characteristic of models in that unit, and the unit has objectives secured. All of them do that for their particular aspect warrior shrine. Uh, the other thing that they all have now that they did not have is they have new keywords. All of yes. them have Aspect Warrior as a keyword, and all of them have their aspect. Like, Asherman gets Dire Avengers as a keyword. Baharoth gets um, Swooping Hawks as a keyword. So this is important because, like you noted there, that means they grant themselves the ability for OPSEC and plus two leadership. And it also means when we look at stratagems, stratagems that target Dire Avengers – you can target Asherman with, which you couldn't do in the past. Or the target aspect warriors, you know, anything. True. So, like, on the one hand, so, like, these are very much force multipliers as far as, like, their usefulness on holding objectives on the battlefield for aspect warriors. And in that regard, I think it's going to be rare. There will be cases where somebody will do it. I think it's going to be rare where you're going to see somebody other than maybe Beltan do a lot of aspect warriors, like, different warrior shrines. I think you're going to see people focus on one or two yeah, I, that's use. where I would lean towards. Like, ooh, I could even see three, maybe, because uh, just because Dire Avengers, mostly because like I have uh, too many Dire Avengers and kind of <laughs> would want to use them. But um, so I'd, I'd and I want to use Banshees, and I like using one of the ranged ones. So I mean, I don't think I'd use three Phoenix Lords. That would be a no, right? But I would probably still put a few aspect like variations into the army. Although, like you noted, they get better once you have their Phoenix Lord with them. Right. And in general, the the like the war gear on the aspect warriors tend to be or on the Phoenix Swords tend to be super powered versions of what they normal like what the Exarchs can take. 
Yeah, and the fact that they all have four-up invones now is sweet, because for a while they were rocking two-up armor, no invone. And so, (laughs) here's a minus four. Oh, you failed your six? Take, like, six wounds from the slas. Like, oh, I guess they're dead. Except now they would only take three also. (laughs) Well, yes, You can't ever knock them down more than half their their wounds in one phase. So, they definitely have the staying power on the table that they needed to have. Yes. I think my biggest disappointment is that once upon a time and not that long ago the as like they would have the like some of the uh, the exarch abilities that the like their exarchs could have it would be nice if like each of them had one of the ex- like the appropriate exarch powers so like, like that would have been kind of Jane cool. do right cuz like yeah they have a little bit of their oh you want them to have like all three abilities <laughs> not all no not all three not all three but it's like well Jane's Jane's are doesn't Jane Sar has oh, yeah. acrobatic. She's, she's got acrobat, which is the normal troop one, right? Right, and like Mog and Raw, like Doom Incarnate is kind of it is slightly n- new, but it's like I really wish the Phoenix Lords had something f- like show that they have like one of the Exarch powers. Even give it, you could even give it the same name if you wanted to. It's just I think my biggest problem with the the uh, Phoenix Lords is they have the the mortal sin of being boring like they're kind of boring they they don't they don't they don't in in some cases they don't even do as much as their aspect like the aspect warriors that follow them do it's just like they're just kind of there i i i see i see where you're going there but i guess for me from playing them in the past the only one i think that got that treatment for me was asherman because he's just like, oh, you're not a leader anymore. Just go hang out with your Dire Avengers who were moving over to Elite. <laughs> yeah, you're just a, you're just a dude now. <laughs> but like the main ones I, I've used in the past would have probably been Jane Sar and Mugen Ra, which like we know are the two new ones. Um, Fuegan, unfortunately, I don't really use Fire Dragons because they die too much. But he's already got hit, uh, what an 18 inch range gun at strength 10. I mean, so he's he kind of got like that that at one exarch power kind of worked in but yeah and then he's also got his strength and toughness high so i mean his thing was i'm just gonna use my fire axe and cleave people which once he takes damage he'll be at strength six ap minus four doing three wounds a swing i mean it's not godly but it's still really solid yeah no i mean again like their war gear is fantastic it just i look at their abilities and i'm like man i wish they just had a bit more character, you know? It's just like, <laughs> these are, like, like demigod-level characters. I wish they felt that way on the tabletop other than, you make this what you make this this squad of co- people that cosplay like you better. Uh, and, and I will agree, if they had had, each one had, like, an ability that was similar to, or maybe an upgraded version of an Exarch power, that would be really cool. Because, I mean, making their tr- things OPSEC is huge. So, I mean, the board game wise, they definitely got upgrades and are huge, but, uh, but I can see what you're saying that, well, it's kind of just a cookie counter stamped between all the Phoenix Lords. Yeah. I think that's my, my biggest problem is like they, it just feels like the same body with sl- a different like skin. slightly different keyword. <laughs> yeah. And with slightly different keywords. So it's like, I, I wish they had a little bit more individuality as is though, like on the tabletop, they're fine. Like they'll, yeah. and it's very clear their job is to be force multipliers for their particular aspect, that aspect. by making yep. it. Yeah. So it, it totally makes sense. It also makes me sad that there is not a warp spider 
Phoenix Lord yet. There's also not a Shining Spear one. That's true. So that is also also disappointing. They also don't have a Crimson Exarch one. Although that one would be weird. (laughs) (laughs) So we took Baharoth and we strapped Lasgun, (laughs) strapped Bright Lances to his head. Well, and if we're looking at the um, Shadow Spectres have a Phoenix Lord, so... They do. So they it's like so there's no excuse the warp spider should have one. I I am so also crossing my fingers that the um uh, Forge World book gets an FAQ to actually bring Illyrith in line with all the other Phoenix Lords. They they really do need to do that to just cuz otherwise the, they'll feel kind of like out of the way again. Mhm. All right, so with all that out of the way, let's move on to non-aspect warrior things and move, you know, move. But forward. we're still in HQs, by the way. We're still in HQ. This book has more HQs, I swear, than any other I, book. Uh, it's only eighteen. Yeah, we're on the last two, though, and they even took some away. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got Illic Nightspear, who is like Super Ranger from Ally Talk, and he hates Necrons a lot. He's one of the few characters we see that actually has an ability that targets a specific fact, you know, a certain faction, and uh, basically says, that isn't a stratagem. <laughs> that is not a stratagem. Exactly, it's like he does plus one to hit and plus one to wound against Necrons, and he's already hitting on a two, and his gun is already strength six. So uh, strength six, AP minus three, three damage, ignores lookout, sir. An unmodified wound roll of four up does D three mortal wounds in addition to any normal damage. So. He just what he does is he kills uh, Necron characters and that's it. K- kills people with resurrection orbs so the other guys will fall down easier. Yep. <laughs> he can't be selected as a target unless if he's getting cover, you can't target him if unless you're within twelve inches. And he has the Ranger cloak, which uh, gives an additional plus one armor in addition to any other cover benefits you're getting. So. He's basically Super Ranger. Um, I would never take him as a Warlord, but um, if I was no. doing Ally no. Talk, he might be fun to throw in, but he definitely wouldn't be a first choice. And then there's uh, Spirit Seer, who is basically uh, there to support um, Spirit Host, which is uh, your Wraith constructs with Spirit Mark. He has to stay within six inches, but if... If a spirit host core unit is within six inches of him, each time that model makes an attack, re-roll a wound roll of one. So he basically is a lieutenant for Wraith Constructs, who are core. And a warlock to get you the either runes of battle or runes of fortune. So you've got the buffing and debilitating spells available. This is true. He does not have a ghost helm, though, so he could could, uh, perils himself to death. Right. Well, he's he's just more like a warlock, not a farseer. But he's right. an HQ because but, the the if you want a wraith host type run, there are no HQs for them other than a spirit seer. Right. All right. Now moving into troops, we've got uh, guardian defenders, rangers, and storm guardians. Um, big thing on uh, guardian defenders and storm guardians is they have four up armor now instead of five up. Also, it's nice to have Storm Guardians actually in a fully plastic kit rather than having to have metal or resin uh, add-on bits. Right. And, uh, like, Guardian Defenders are still kind of what they are. You know, they're troops who can bring along a a weapons a heavy weapons platform with them. But I do like their new Defenders rule. For Guardian Defenders, if they're within range and an objective marker, um, they reroll hit rolls of one with their uh, Shuriken weapons, which they already hit on threes. I mean, that's very nice. I was also, I'll admit, sad to see that they can't take the shield, but then the the melee group can't take the 
ranged attack weapon. So I guess it balances out. Right. And I like how the platform's just not there, even though it's there, if that makes any sense. Yeah, basically, if it's destroyed, you don't care about about it morale-wise, and they don't count for, like, half strength or anything like that. So they're basically yeah. like drones. Yeah, and they don't go away till the last person's dead, and then it just goes away. Also, you don't have to use any guardians to fire it or anything. It just fires right. on its own. I like that. And then uh, storm guardians, on the other hand, are the close combat guardians who are armed with uh, clo- the combat clo- or the close combat weapon, which is basically an AP. You know, they're, so they're at strength three, but AP minus one, one damage, an additional attack. So they get two attacks each. Um, they can take flamers or guardian fusion guns, which aren't quite as good as fire dragon guns, but they'll do in a pinch. And then they're, yeah, instead of taking a heavy weapons platform, they can take a serpent shield, which gives them a five up invuln against ranged attacks. And, uh, they, they can't be wounded on anything, uh, worse than a three. So it does give them some survivability. This feels like the generic guardian before there were the defenders were around. Cause I mean, it feels like a kind of a space green squad. You can take these weapons. You can take these and, and you can kind of have a mixed weapon unit, which. Mm-hmm. I'm def- I'll admit I'm not used to as an Eldar player. <laughs> I also uh, like their Stormblades ability. Um, when they make a melee attack against an enemy unit that's within re- range of any objective markers, reroll a hit roll of one. So Guardian Defenders are there to guard. They sit there and they defend objectives. Storm Guardians are there to storm objectives and take them. So their rules reflect that. And I like seeing that in you know the units. They have very clear roles. And you can bump up to a squad of 20 to send, have them do 20 attacks at or something. I don't know. I, I, I want to use them. I still haven't figured out how, because I'm, I'm probably still going to stick to jet bikes. But although with Guardian Combat Weapons, that 20 would be 40 attacks if they all can all get into combat. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, if you are playing Ulthway, just like we said, Ulthway, like Warp Spiders, uh, Ulthway Guardians, their stratagem is Discipline of the Black Guardians. Uh, use it in your, for CP. In either your shooting or your fight phase, select an Ulthway Guardians unit to shoot or fight. Until the end of the phase, um, add one to their hit rolls. So Fair. you can have them hitting on twos, which is pretty nifty. And then we have Rangers, which uh, kind of the same role. They are your sniper troops. And we already mentioned what the Ranger Cloak does with Illic, and this is basically the same thing. They can infiltrate. Um, their long rifles are, you know, they can ignore lookouts, sir. It causes mortal wounds on a six, in addition to normal damage, which is strength four, AP minus one, one damage. Um, they have a couple of other pieces of war gear that are new. One is a gloom field. Each time a uh, range attack is made against the bear's unit, if the attacking model is more than 18 inches away, then you have dense cover, and you don't have to be in a in a piece of cover to get that. So you can just you could be out in the open and still have dense cover and be minus one to hit. Or the wire weave net uh, once per battle when you are selected as a target of a charge, you can select to activate the wire weave net. Roll a d6 on a two up. The charging unit suffers d3 mortal wounds and loses two from their charge rolls. And that's against, and any unit that tries to charge that unit gets minus two to their charge rolls. So if you want to make sure somebody does not rush into assault with your rangers, a wire weave net seems to be like a must take. Yeah, even the gloom field seems nice, but I, yeah, the wire weave seems stronger if you think you're going to get attacked from melee. And uh, point wise, they're both five points apiece, so. Whichever one you want to take, it's is it's a wash. But I I think the the wire weave net seems like 
because I'm going to generally want to be in terrain that's going to provide dense cover anyway. So wire weave seems like just the the better of the two options in most cases. All right, then we get to Corsairs, our last and brand new troop choice. They're not new. And, well, well, they're, they're new, new for new this book. Plastic. They're new in this it, book. They're new in plastic. Because I mean, I'll, I'll probably like make reference to like the um, Doom of Mimiria, where um, that's where they are, and I can see like there were Corsairs command crew, there were troops, there were. So I mean, yeah, remember yeah. when? Remember when there were lots of Corsair options? Yeah, Beverage Farm remembers. So they're equipped by you know by stock. They're equipped with shuriken pistols and power swords. And it's also interesting if you look at their faction keywords. They have Eldari. They have Asuriani. They have Onroth, which we said is the uh, Corsair keyword. They also have the Drukari keyword, and that's a faction keyword. So you could run these in a Drukari army, but why? <laughs> well, I think you have to wait till the Drukari, unless the Drukari get the update saying that you can have a Corsair detachment for. Well, well I mean, they'd have to. Get, no, I'm saying not, could, they'd have to have the rule in there that makes them not take away your. They they wouldn't because they have the Drukari faction keyword. I looked up how uh, Power from Pain works. As long as everything in there is Drukari, and this has the Drukari faction well, keyword, you Power you from could Pain, put yeah, the, but but not for like the Cabal ones. You true, they wouldn't. Yeah, you'd lose the Cabal trade if you had that. That's but like I said, it's got the Drukari faction keyword. It's just like you could put them in a Drukari army, but you'd get no benefit from it. But their weapon load, like the weapons they can take, like they they've got a the Fell Arc, which is their uh, sergeant. Basically, he can take like a Nero Disruptor, which is a Harlequin weapon. For every five models in the unit, you can take a Blaster or a Shredder, which is very Drukari. So it's like they they've kind of built in this. They can borrow things from all the various Eldari factions. To be fair, in in the where they first were introduced, they could take flamers, fusion guns, shredders, and blasters. They could take splinter rifles, shuriken catapults. So yeah, they could already. Because I mean, the theory is the corsairs are outcasts from Drakari, Harlequins, and Eldari, where they're just yeah, t- come with us, bring whatever war you got. We'll we'll do something. Mm-hmm. And uh, like they have some interest, they have an interesting ability, Reavers of the Void. Their sixes to hit automatically wound, and is treated as an unmodified wound roll of six, which is cool. Which means if you if they have a wraith cannon, it will inflict inflict a mortal wound in addition. Okay, that's to their normal I don't see wraith cannon as something they could take before. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's that is new. Well, not before, but new. <laughs> yeah, but. You'll also notice they don't have strands of fate or battle focus, so don't hope that you'll give them that automatic six to hit. Right, they're they're just there as something else to be have a variety of weapons that you might not normally have access to. True. Uh, also, there's the outcasts and pirate rules. If your army is battleforged, the unit cannot be used as a compulsory selection in a detachment, e.g. as the only troops unit in a patrol detachment, unless the detachment only contains Onrath units. That includes HQs, and there is one, Prince Ariel. If you want to use Corsairs as troops, Ariel has to be in the HQ slot, and it's the only thing that can be in an HQ slot, HQ slot which means patrol only. Ah, I that just the lack of actual Corsair HQs. You'd mentioned it earlier, but that seems like a huge oversight to make these guys worth taking outside of something narrative. Yeah, especially since they, like I said, they used to have their own Forge World 
army. And, you know, it's like I could see the point of, like, of taking them, like, you can't use them as your compulsory troops choice. But, you know, it's like, well, okay, well, maybe if they were cheaper, except they're not. They are, other than rangers, which rangers are expensive because of their guns and some of their other abilities. Corsairs are more expensive per model than guardian, like either side of either form of guardian. So it's like they're not even like a true, a cheaper troop choice that really gets you anything other than a couple of weapon options if you take enough of them. It's just like, ah, these guys don't really fit in anywhere do they which i mean is thematically appropriate but it's like why couldn't we have had onroth as a like craft world option or just one hq like a corsair prince h generic hq yeah that would have been that would have been nice and then have the ability to maybe take corsair transports like have corsair be an op have onroth be an option for like wave serpents or something like that like yeah. that there's ways they could have made this kind of playable well i understand they didn't want to add an additional faction to the book here's what you do because in the book they do have two dedicated transports one's a venom one's a falcon and nobody uses falcons so here's your dedicated transport for the corsairs make them use the falcons oh yeah um (laughs) which they can they can be in there on roth infantry can be in a falcon so it's it's there should be Uh, and, and then you might complain, what what do you do about their psychic? Because Eldari is known for their psychic. Well, we you an do have, there is a psyker. Um, if you go to the elite unit, the Corsair Void Scarred, which are basically the veteran Corsairs, who can take a, uh, a Wayseeker, which is basically their psyker, who can know runes of fate or runes of fortune. So it's kind of like a spirit seer. It's like a tiny farseer, but with like spirit seer body. It's weird. Yeah, especially since he only got one wound. Yeah. Because I, I did, like back to the old Forge World book, they had their psychers called the Void Dreamer, who they had their own psychic power tree. Like they had six psychic powers. Although most of them were about movement of units, which the I guess the Shadow Seer from Harlequins has kind of picked up some of that. But I don't know. I, I would have loved to see like the Void Dreamer, and I would have loved to see more Corsair stuff, and maybe make them as big as like the Harlequin section in in here. But that's not what we got. And this is like there's there's other options for Corsairs. I'm not really going to go into them because it's basically. We want to have the Corsairs from the upcoming Kill Team box playable in the Codex, so we'll make a rules entry for them. There's no point in taking them, honestly. I really Other don't think Other than Fluff. Other than Fluff. Like, if you want to do them narratively, that's a reason. Competitively, no. There's nothing they do that other units aren't going to do better in some and fit the army better. Let's see. Moving on. Warlocks. Uh, warlocks are interesting because they actually cost more points if you only have one, like per model. If you have one warlock on foot, it costs 40. If you have two, they're 20 each. That's kind of how they were in previous things. It was always cheaper to have a conclave than it was a single one per model, that is. And the other thing you'll note, we, we, we hit the Corsair elites. We are firmly in the elites. Warlocks have moved from the HQ to elites now. Yes. Although, if you have a Farseer in your army, for for every Farseer in your army, you can have a Warlocks unit uh, without taking up a battlefield slot, which is good because there's a lot of competition for the elite slot in this army. So having being able to take a Seer Council of Warlocks without taking up a slot is very good. And the other thing I think is neat, like you mentioned, single Warlock versus multiples, 
If you're single, it actually grants you the character keyword. So once you have more than one, well, you're no longer a character. So I think that's a, a cool designation of them calling it right. out. Right, and, that, and that's based off of starting strength. So it's not like you get like, oh yeah, my yeah. other warlock <laughs> friends died, and now I am a character. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> I also like how they know. Uh, depend the more warlocks are in the unit, the more psychic powers they can know and cast. So that's that's a cool cool thing as well. Yeah, that they had that last time too. So I, I just I like that. So it's a very flexible unit. Depend, you know, you can build it however you want. As far as like, do you want to have just like one warlock providing assistance? Do you want to have a whole seer council? Um, do you want them on bikes or on foot? That you, I mean, they're technically two different data sheets, but I, I I just like how the warlocks have been handled. And the only thing different about the ones on jet bikes is, well, they have jet bike rules. They move a lot and have the advanced six and extra toughness. Right. Let's see where we get through all those aspect warriors again. Okay, Wraith Blades, a Wraith Guard, and the Wraith Lord, who has been moved from heavy support to elite now. Again, there's lots of competition in the elite slot. The elite is just packed. And I think that's going to be the hardest part for this army, is is figuring out what elites to take. Yeah. I was going to say, on the, on the Wraith Blades, since that's the first one here, I, I still have to decide Ghost Axe versus Ghost Swords. I think I'm still leaning towards Ghost Axes. Because it's nice that each time they attack, they make two additional attacks with the ghost swords, so they'll be at five attacks. But if they take the axe, they can take the shield. And having a four-up in bone save is really nice. Yes. Also, you'll notice none of them have battle focus, but they do have strands of fate, so they can benefit from that. Also, they all have wraithbone form, which uh, subtracts one from any incoming damage to a minimum of one. So that's with the tough six... Three up armor and shrugging off like one point of damage off of multi damage weapons, they'll be very survivable, which has always been kind of their role. Yeah, and they're still very slow. Five <laughs> inches of movement, yes, very, very slow. On the other hand, Wraith Guard, D sides and Wraith Cannons are nasty weapons. They always were. They always were. They continue to be. And then the addition of the War Construct rule, which lets them fire in engagement range. Yes, that, that is huge. Because normally, that's just it was. Oh, you got some wraiths, Just tie them up. They're they're kind of useless. They'll try and hit you with the back of their weapons, and they'll be very ineffectual. But they also have like three attacks and strength five, so they'll they'll still be okay. Once again, no invone save, which is the only negative I have about them. But, but oh man, so uh, strength ten damage flamer. A modified wound rolls of six inflict a mortal wound in addition to the normal damage. Well, it's not just a flame. It's not a flamer. It's a blast weapon too. Not talking about the D scythe. Oh, I am talking about the D scythe. It's not a. It's not an auto hit. It's a blast weapon. Oh, I see that now. Okay, they changed it on me. Interesting. Well, you couldn't fire the blast in close combat, though, could you? You are right. You are right. Blast weapons have a rule: they can never be used to attack units within the firing unit's engagement range. Yeah. So wraith cannons are actually maybe a hair better. Wraith cannons also have the extra range, so that's useful. So fewer shots, but yeah, more damage. Six of one, half dozen the other. Mm-hmm. It just depends on like what your goal with that unit is. And generally, I I would think the I don't know the it, it, like it. It just depends on how you're going to use them. Are you going to try to pop them out of a transport, like pop five of them out of a transport, and like unload deeth sides on some unit nearby, or well, are you going the, the to... question would be: are, are you treating them like fire dragons? And if so, which one's cheaper? <laughs> yeah, true. 
Um, is you know is one cheaper? Um, let's see. Looking at elites, uh, wraith guard D sides are actually more more expensive at five points apiece. And so how about the? I'd say wraith one. cannons. <laughs> yeah, so wraith cannons are cannons. cheaper, but I, I think fire dragons would still be cheaper than your your wraith guard. Yeah, most likely the wraith guard are forty points a model. Fire dragons are twenty three. <laughs> But to be fair, I think the Wraith Guard would stay on the table while the Fire Dragons, you'd be picking them up after they shoot. I should say, they're 23 points plus 20 points for Blazing Fury if you're going to go with uh, Fire Dragons. Well, you have to pay that extra 20 points once. True. Let's see. Then the the Wraith Lord, he really hasn't changed other than also having the Wraithbone form and reducing incoming damage by one. But it's interesting that they've moved him out of heavy support for reasons. I'm not really sure why. Because he seems more like a heavy support gun platform to me, but... I don't know why either. Don't think he's changed all the way. I think he might not. I think they may have taken one wound off of him so he doesn't degrade. Let to me make him, check. I think that's true. Yeah, that's the case. They took him from 10 wounds down to 9. So he no longer degrades, so that's good. Yes, that is a good thing. Otherwise, he's still strength 7, toughness 8... Weapon skill, ballistic skill 3, 8-inch movement. Yeah, his stat line is pretty much the same. Ghostglaive's still nasty. Ghostglaive's still nasty, nasty, does more consistent damage at D3 plus 3, and he's got a sweeping blow version of it, so he's more dangerous to units of infantry. And I I can't imagine taking him without the Ghostglaive, honestly. Uh, Older editions, you had to. If you wanted the Ghostglaive, you had to give up one of your um, big weapons. And then they that took that no rule away. <laughs> right. And then I had to, like, try and attach a ghost glaive on one of my uh, <laughs> more Wraith Lords. So that one looks a little weird because I still haven't, like, primed or painted that hand. <laughs> the ghost glaive is a 15-point upgrade. So, like, oh, totally worth it. On, yeah, he's a base 100. Like, to really trick him out, you could make him very expensive very quickly. So just oh, yeah. be aware of that. He's also included in the Combat Patrol as an elite choice, so that's interesting. Like, the new Combat Patrol box that will be coming out. Um, let's see, moving into heavy, or uh, moving fast. into fast attack, we've got Windrider Jet Bikes and Viper. More former troops. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, the only thing about this one is the new Swift um, Demise. Uh, I think. So that, that they're also there to help clear people off of objective markers by re-rolling ones to hit if there's an enemy unit on a, within range of an objective marker. But other than that, it's a standard thing. Scatter laser still your heavy six. Shuriken cannon's heavy three. The twin shuriken is only 18 inches. I still don't like it, even though it's assault four. <laughs> it's the cheapest option if you're just going oh, to take course, a stock. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. But you only get the swift demise ability if you're using the twin shuriken catapults. Oh, that's right, right. So that's the one reason why they would be more effective, or why you'd want yeah, to re-roll- use them. So, so you're re-rolling ones, so you're hitting on everything but twos. So that's that's useful. So I, yeah, I, I think right. there's an argument to be made, and with four shots and shuriken, that's that's more option, you know, more opportunities to get that, you know, minus three right. AP. No, because so, no one was probably taking the shuriken catapults, and Swift Demise is a reason to take shuriken catapults now. Mm-hmm. I mean, scatter lasers are still a fantastic choice. It's the shuriken cannons aren't bad either. So I, I would still go shuriken cannons myself, but that's just because I'm bu- yeah. how I built my craft world. <laughs> right, but the uh, but having the twin shuriken catapult actually have a, a particular role to fulfill is good. So I'm glad to have yes, that. Yes, totally agree with that. Vipers are still just fast gun platforms. Yes, 
I mean, that's what they that's what they do. That's what they are. They, They're not they bad really at it. Change. Nope. Uh, let's see. Tuck Shining Spears. Shroud Runners. This is the new. Uh, <laughs> It is now. It's an outcast's bike. It does not have the Rangers keyword though, which I th- thought was interesting because there's a couple. Of, there's like a stratagem at least that keys off of that. Well, the, their Ranger keyword is called Shroud Runners. They're, they're their own thing. <laughs> right. Because I'm sorry, those bikes aren't as stealthy as a normal Ranger. <laughs> no, this is true. They are not. <laughs> but basically, it's Rangers on jet bikes. Yeah. And they can also take away cover or, like, ignore cover for any outcast unit. So they can, like, right. basically mark targets for rangers, which is – that's yes. cool. Yeah, they're your advanced party to get out of the scout and kind of snipe some things while then the guys hiding in the buildings can put the finishing touches on them. Also, the bikes being armed with scatter lasers by default is interesting. Yeah. So they can actually put out some really nasty firepower. My only hope is both them and the Rangers, if I can actually roll better, because in the past, my Rangers could not actually ever hit anything. I mean, it's like my my whole Land Raider thing. Good unit, I just roll horrible when I use them. Mm -hmm. All right, then we've got Warwalkers, which are slightly slower, but slightly more resilient because of having a 5-up invuln gun platform. At Once upon a time, Warwalkers were like a clutch unit. I don't know if they are anymore, but they are interesting. Well, they they had outflank where they'd always come in from the sides and kind of help clear out things. But now you have advanced positions, uh, so that's good. Yeah. And, yeah so they can they, infiltrate, they just, which is nice. Yeah, I mean, just like the Viper is your weapons platform for speedy stuff, this is your weapons platform for advanced positions, pretty much. Yep. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, we did Dark Reapers, so we've got support weapons, which um, the D-Cannon is still fantastic. Yeah, the, the only thing is the way this ad- previous edition and this one work, I still think as much as I love the DK and the Shadow Weavers are better, just because you don't have to have line of sight. You don't have to have line of sight with the D-Cannon either. Oh, you don't anymore? Weapon can target oh! units that are not visible to the bear. <laughs> yeah, no, D-Cannon's, D-Cannon's the best choice. It has less range than the Shadow Weaver, but 24 inches on the size of tables right now, 24 inches is just fine. Oh, wait, no. And it had that rule before, too. I just looked it up. It's just, I think it was too many points for me to put into the army. Because mm-hmm. D cannons are expensive. They probably still are expensive. Let's see. For a support weapon, uh, 45 points per model, and then a D cannon is an extra 20. So it does make them 65 points each. And the Shadow Weaver is how much more extra? Uh, it's it's stock like it's it's the same oh, the so 40, it's 45 okay. versus yeah it's 45 versus 60 yeah the shadow weaver is the default weapon okay so yeah I, I, and if you got a squad of three that's the 180s expensive but not terrible for a wait this has seven attacks in close combat wow because of the crew on board <laughs> i know but it just looks weird can you imagine being charged by a support weapon <laughs> I've been charged by a rhino before, so yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I just imagine I, this thing rolling up with two guys, like waving their be- waving their pistols in the air, getting ready to hit you. Oh, and it's technically still a vehicle, so it can still move its six inches and fire. Yep. No, I think like support weapons definitely have have a spot to fill. Then we get to the Falcon, and when I first <laughs> looked at the fa- okay, so when I first looked at the Falcon. I was kind of disappointed because I'm like, well, there's the Falcon and then there's the Wave Serpent. And, okay, well, maybe the Wave Serpent's more expensive. No, the Falcon and the Wave Serpent are the same cost, not including any weapons upgrades. 
However, there is one difference the Falcon has, and that's because they have Cloud Strike. You can start them uh, set up preparing a sudden assault, so they have de- that you can deep strike a Falcon. You can also deep strike them turn one, regardless of any mission rules. Oh, that's which basically, okay. which makes them a drop pod. <laughs> no, because they can move. <laughs> okay, well they can move after they drop in because they don't they don't show up until your reinforcements phase. But then anybody who's in there automatically disembarks once you deep strike them in. So they are they act like drop pods who can then move afterwards. Oh wow. So I think they finally found a way to give the Falcon a roll without but it's also not a dedicated transport. It is going to use up one of your heavy support choices. Oh, that's maybe take. that's why they moved the Wraith Lords out. <laughs> <laughs> and they needed to make room. Um, and honestly, um, like still, the pulse laser is not a bad gun on it. Right. It comes with a pulse laser and scatter laser stock, which is a good amount Solid. of firepower. Yeah, you can replace the scatter laser with a bright lance if you need more. But I, I think with the the pulse laser, I think you have an like you're you're trading a point of AP for a point of strength. So I, but you also get two shots from the pulse laser instead of just the one from the bright lance. I mean, which would give you three shots total, but I think having six shots on the scatter laser that you can shoot at something else seems to make it a a better choice. Yeah, the only downside is transport would be you're pretty much limited to your aspect warriors, I would say, because you're not going to can't put a squad of 10 guardians in here. No, Uh, you can't put a Phoenix Lord in. Yes. So a five um, or five model squad of an aspect warrior plus a Phoenix Lord is your six. Because mm-hmm. it says Eth Wraith ra- 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 Construct counts as two infantry, so well you're you're five a model Wraith Guard are out because there's five of them. That would be ten, and you can't do that in here, right? Which I'm assuming that's just copied over from the Wave Serpent. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But I could absolutely see dr- dropping in like Jane Zar in a unit of five Banshees or Fuegan oh, in a unit of fire f- fire dragons. Yeah. Oh my god! No, I'm I'm glad I I was just skimming over the Falcon because like yeah, it's the Falcon. Yeah, no, this makes the Falcon good. It has a role, which is pretty it impressive for a twenty something year old plastic kit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, is it really that old? But yeah. yeah yes, it, it is. Really it is. really yeah. is. We've got the Night Spinner, which is a tank with basically versions of the Shadow Weaver from the support weapons onto it. And that's basically it. That's what it does. It has a Doom Weaver, which has a lot of shots and can target things out of line of sight. And Strength 7, AP minus 2, 2 damage is not bad. Well, and also, it, as we're looking at the vehicles, here's where you'll see where Spirit Stones could be useful. Because spirit stones are now giving you the um, double the number of wounds for determining what tier you're in. Yeah, like all and, all the vehicle the vehicle upgrades are all decent. Yeah, and vectored engines gives your vehicles battle focus, which is still only going to be d6 inches. So I don't I know. know if vectored engines is really worth it for vehicles. It's just not enough movement the way it is for infantry. Um, yeah, the targeting matrix is nice. Anytime you make a range attack, you can ignore any modifiers to the hit roll, which also means if so, if you're firing in engagement range, your heavy weapons aren't at minus one to hit because um, it's anytime you make a range attack. And also that means you ignore cover, you ignore you, know, like you ignore dense cover, you ignore any unit abilities that would subtract one to hit. You know, crystal targeting That's module solid. if for a short for a shooty tank is going to be like really useful yeah, and this yeah spirit stones definitely useful star engines the extra three inches of yeah. movement 
Uh, you've already got 16. Uh, I, I, I kind of think that's almost gilding the lily at a pass. that point. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, crystal targeting matrix or, or spirit stones, depending on what you're doing. Then we get the fire, the fire prism, which their big strength is going to come in from a stratagem. But the prism ca- cannon is kind of scary. Well, just because I got up to 14 strength? 14 strength, minus 5 AP, 3D3 damage, and it's got two shots. Or you can do heavy 3D3 strength 6, AP minus 2, 2 damage blast. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of terrifying. They lost the ability to fire twice if they moved half range, though, so... Uh, yes and no. Uh, they lost that ability, but your lance only had a one-shot before, so... So it fires not- twice <laughs> by default, so yeah. Right. Uh, and then we've got the Wave Serpent, which is the def- the dedicated transport that can hold 12 models. That's the transport you're going to see most of the time. And the Serpent Shield has basically the same effect that the that it does on the Storm Guardians, which is which is it's good. I mean, the Wave Serpent is a very resilient transport. Five up in one against range attacks, and range attacks fail to wound it on a one to three, so that's great and that's stock and then you could take the spirit stones on top of that and the thing would just never die until it died <laughs> you know until it took its last move uh, that's funny let's see and then going into flyers we talked crimson hunter there's the hemlock wraith fighter which is your psyker flyer it still has the mind sh- mind shock pod which is still a minus an aura of minus two leadership which could stack with some interesting abilities um, yeah, as elsewhere. we're seeing other things that, yeah, start using more leadership abilities. The this minus leaderships starting to look nicer. Mm-hmm. And the hem- and the heavy death sides are also still very good. So, oh my, yeah, tw- strength twelve, yeah, yeah. So honestly, like either the Crimson Hunter or Hemlock Wraith Fighter, if if you are inclined to take a flyer, both of them are good choices. Uh, then our Lord of War, the Wraith Knight. We are almost done with data sheets. Um, the Wraith Knight. <laughs> I know this book. There's a reason I'm breaking this into two episodes. I think the Wraith Knight got better. I agree. Having a five up in Voln stock and the Wraithbone form of minus one damage is very good. Well, and that was my complaint before is you pretty much had to take a scatter shield because three up armor. Yes, it has eight toughness, but... Things go will go through your armor quite easily if they start wounding you, and then you just fall down without an invone save. So I'm glad that it's stock now, and it doesn't make the shield an auto-take anymore. It just The shield will just improve your invone save. So I don't feel bad about taking the two Heavy Wraith Cannons. The, yeah, I mean, the heavy, heavy Wraith Cannons got better damage D3 plus 6 instead of just D6, and their blast, and... They call it an unmodified wound roll of six is D3 mortal wounds in addition to the normal damage. I mean, that's almost that's like Tau Railgun damage there, practically. The Titanic Ghost Glaive having a sweep attack is really nice. Yes. So instead of what, five attacks, you'll get 15. Yep. Now, this the strike mode did lose a little bit because it used to double strength and now it is just plus six strength. But it's otherwise, I mean, that's still 14 Aww. strength. That's still going to wound. You can't wound knights on a two. Sorry. Yeah. I still like its flat six damage on the hits. That's really nice. Yeah. Like, the Wraith Knight, I think, got, like, consistently better in a number of ways. Is it enough to take it? I don't know. Because also, if you only take one, 
Um, it will, like in a super heavy auxiliary, it will not get the craft world trait that you put on it. So that's unfortunate. You have to take three. <laughs> you have to take three to get that. And that's so. an expensive um, That's, yeah, because they're like, what, 400 points base? No, uh, 400 points. I was also thinking um, command point wise, I think, isn't that six command points or is it only it's, three to use? Um, it's six if they're all titanic, I think. Yeah. So that's why I was thinking it's six command points to put in three Wraith Knights. In an army where you're going to need as many as you can get. So, yeah, the Wraith Knights is still a hard sell. It's better, though. It's definitely a, an improvement of where it was before. Uh, d- datasheet model-wise, it's definitely improved. I think it can hold its own on the battlefield now as opposed to just getting shot off. But mm-hmm. the way they set up the Lord of War stuff, it's going to be very hard difficult to, to yeah. yeah, it's difficult to justify and then finally, the Webway Gate, which got a major upgrade in that it does not have a stat line, meaning it's yes. indestructible. <laughs> I am very thankful for that. And uh, like, it's only eighty points, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was more expensive before, I believe. Yeah, if you can get your hands on them, I think they're they're out of stock right now. But I, 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 um, I know two. you already have <laughs> you have two sets. Um, yeah, honestly, they're not painted or primed because I've never used it. But you can only use one in your army. Okay, I'm fine. Your with army that. can only include one Webway Gate unit. That is actually a rule on it, which means I'll just have to buy the other one off of you. I don't know. I <laughs> well, we, I'm sure we can work something out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you you can set it up uh, anywhere on the battlefield, more than 12 inches away from any from the enemy deployment zone. Any enemy models, the two archers have to be set up within three inches of each other. They are considered an obstacle with light cover, heavy cover, unstable position, inspiring for Eldari. If your army includes this unit and you're using strategic reserves, you can have the command point cost required to place Eldari units into strategic reserves, rounded down, but does not stack with Prince of Corsairs. So they're they're very careful on that. You can't get quarter price uh, Corsairs coming out of this. (laughs) And then any time an Eldari unit from your army arrives from strategic reserves, you can choose to have it set up anywhere within, anywhere on the battlefield within six inches of the Webway Gate. If you do so, they can be set up within nine inches of enemy models and can be set up within engagement range. Yeah, but do note that six inches within range of both arches. So you can't like set them up on going out of the side of one if it's not within the range of the other. Right, they have to be between the arches, which makes sense. Yes. But if you can have them pop out immediately in engagement range, they count as as having made a charge move, they can't be overwatched, and until the end of the turn, they can target any enemy unit in in engagement range with melee attacks, even though they didn't declare a charge. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, it, it makes it usable, and then you'd have to, like, decide, like, Will an enemy come close? Do I put melee units in reserve? Do I put, well, you probably won't shooty once, but do you put like guardian defender, not defender, the storm guardians? Storm. Or maybe, maybe guardian defenders if you put it close enough where they can run to a point that other people knock off. But I mean, it gives you more board control strategic options. Yeah. And I just love, like, I love the rules behind it. I love that it lets you break that nine inch bubble. Like if your opponent is silly enough to be within, because it also means your opponent's going to be kind of wary to go near that webway gate. If you have stuff in reserves, knowing that, yeah, it could just pop up and start messing with me and I can do nothing about it. Right. Um, so that's where Wraith, constri- uh, Wraith guard with uh, D cannons who can fire in engagement range. 
I'll just have them walk out of the gate and be in engagement range with you and shoot you in the face with D-cannons. I mean, the biggest thing is going to be able to place it. Uh, I think there are a lot of groups that let you, if you can't place a your, terrain, or your fortification, that you can remove a piece of terrain to place it, but not all I do. Th- I think that's actually, let me, let me see. Yeah, I, a lot of them are doing like player place terrain anyway. Unless otherwise stated, when setting up a model with a unit with the fortifications battlefield role in the battlefield, if it, it cannot be set up within three inches of any other terrain feature that is not part of its own data sheet, excluding hills, if it is not possible to set up a fortification as a result, a player can, in a Warzone Knockman Grand Tournament mission, remove one obstacle or area terrain feature from the battlefield within their deployment zone from the battlefield in order to make room for their fortification. Okay, so that, that's the part. It's within the, your deployment zone. Right. So it, this is not as useful in the deployment zone, but... It's not as... It, it, no, true. It is not as useful in your own, but there should still be places, like, in in the middle of the field that you can place it, especially if you can place it, like, in missions where there's an objective in the middle, or even if it's, to, like, one flank or the other. Being able to, like, put a webway gate around an objective and pop up there is very useful. So I, I think there's a lot of, like, I think it's a very, very useful fortification for Eldari. Yes. Armies. And it goes along with the theme of, of board control, high movement, high mobility. So, yeah. And then that takes us, whew, zooming back in the book, to stratagems. There, and again, stratagems, there's even, like, it's broken into sections for Eldari and then Harlequins, but we'll just be talking about the Eldari ones. Not going to go through just, all of these. Just highlight. <laughs> yeah, just highlight a few. Uh, you mentioned that Osterman has the the, the Dire Avengers unit. That means he's uh, eligible, for example, for Av- Avengers of Assyrian, uh, which lets him shoot, which would let any Dire Avengers unit. Uh, that it, Well, no, okay, it would not work for him, because he can't be below his starting strength, because if he is, he's dead. But... <laughs> <laughs> so, bad call. Bad choice on that one. Other Div- Dire Avengers units, though, if they've lost somebody, can shoot twice. Like, There's also a number of these abilities apply to Asuriani, Harlequins, or Inari units. They, they specifically call that out, which will matter more next episode. Instead of having the old Ancient Doom ability, they instead have a stratagem called the Great Enemy, which lets them re-roll hit wounds and wound roll, hit rolls and wound rolls against Slanesh units. They've got, you know, abilities to, like, get extra hits with shuriken weapons, or um, you can make your guardian units reroll hit rolls of one. Yeah, the ones I'll call out on the next page is Phoenix Reborn. Bring a Phoenix Lord back to life. With D3 wounds I mean, remaining, yeah. It's a four up, so it's not like Celestine's two up, but it's only one CP. It's always worth a try. Battle Psychers is another nice one, because if you use that, instead of selecting one of the two powers, you can select both. Yeah, with when your warlocks cast a runes of battle ability, I even like the avatar resurgent. You kill the avatar, he still fights you and gets two extra attacks when doing so. You can actually get relics for your exarchs now. Yes, relics of the shrines. They have a list, uh, a specific list of exarch only relics that you can take on pay. Yeah, which and we didn't so really cover one, that one, but that's fine. For one CP, you get to pick two of them, and like we said, you probably will only have like two. Um, aspect war- types of aspect warriors in the army. So yeah, give a look at those over, and you might see some that. I mean, some of them when I was looking at are decent. Others are like nah. But for one uh, CP, you get I, two upgrades. If you're ta- we've already talked about like you should take blazing. You know, 
Blazing was it Blazing Fury for uh, Fire Dragons? Yeah, Blazing Fury. You should also take Dragon's Fury because that subtracts two from charge rolls of anybody who tries to charge you because you know you're likely in charge distance. Is you that could just their make relic? You, yeah, that's their relic. <laughs> you can just make Fire Dragons real annoying to deal with. Well, they they need to be. They they were here melt and go die before. Yeah. I also like the Seer Council, because that's a fluff thing, where you have a Warlock and your Farseers together. Here's one where they don't become a unit, but it gives bonuses to both the Farseer and the Warlock squad if you're within um, six inches of each other. Or six inches yeah. for the Farseer and three inches for the Warlock. So I like the fluff that gets put in, in that. And then you you were talking about Linked Fire, Rob. Yes, Linked Fire, which is the stratagem that makes fire prisms really terrifying now they've always had this ability in some form or other you know for a long time where like you could like because the idea is like two like one or two fire prisms fire into the crystal of a third one and that makes one big beam and so they still kind of do that it's like you have to have fire prisms within 12 inches of each other and for each fire each of the other fire prisms you have you get two additional attacks with the uh, focused lance profile, and they ignore invulnerable saves, which six shots with no invulnerable saves is going to ruin something's day. I mean, because it's also strength 14, minus 5 AP, so it's pretty much no, no save. save. Yeah, no saves, no you know, no invuln save, D3 plus 3 damage per shot is just ridiculous. Um, we still have that's fire... That's expensive to use. <laughs> Two CP is expensive to use. Well, yeah, fire, three fire prisms is three fire prisms is the expensive part. That is also true, but you don't have to like you can with even two fire prisms you can still get some use out of this. True, because like once upon a time it's like it actually at like you needed multiples to to like ramp up the strength. You don't have to do that <laughs> right. anymore, at least. So it just it gives you extra extra shots and takes away invulnerable saves cuz if you if you didn't care about invulnerable saves if you're shooting at something that doesn't have an invuln just use them separately and don't spend the cp but if you're right. trying to take down something with an invulnerable save you've got Marcarian. that option so I, yeah no it would absolutely <laughs> be good for taking down something like mortarian or magnus we still have fire and fade which lets you have a normal move up to 7 inches Eldritch Storm's one I'd also call out on this page. Although I and they do point out that uh, if you fire and fade and you're not Harlequins, you can't get back in a transport, and you can't battle focus and use fire and fade. Oh, nice! I just use battle focus. But if you so if you do want to get back into a piece of terrain, you have to spend two CP to do it. Basically, that's a lot. Yeah, no, it, it is a lot, but I, I but it makes sense, and it's again, it's kind of yeah. one of those balancing factors. If you're going Farseer heavy, Eldritch Storm is very nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because wasn't that a that was a psychic power that you had instead of Will of Astrian, wasn't it? Probably, yeah, but it wasn't this cool. Now it becomes a psychic action that you do, which yeah, no, that is cool. The uh, swooping hot grenade pack is now a strat that you use, which also does mean that uh, Baharoth can do that now. Yeah, I'm trying to see how many stratagems target aspect. Avengers of Assyrian is for dire Avengers, but again, you can't use that one with Asterman because that means he's dead. Right. Uh, There's the swooping hawk one for the grenades, fusion charges for the fire dragons. And I think that my... I would not use fusion charges on on Fuegan. 
Because <laughs> you select one model in that unit to put a bomb. It's like, no. Yeah, no, no, use no your, don't use, use it with six it. attacks. <laughs> just, just beat them to death with the axe instead. But for normal fire dragons, if if it's a all out, you must kill that vehicle. And oh, you yeah, haven't totally. Yet, I, I, I suppose, yeah. Also, the uh, firing the serpent shield uh, from your wave serpent or from the uh, storm guardian's serpent shield. Right. Um, that is actually now a uh, strat. Although it no longer does damage, it just uh, yeah. causes the unit to... You know, being able to turn off Overwatch could be useful for Storm Guardians. It would be, yeah. Because you turn it off, and then you can charge, and then there's nothing there. And then you hope somebody else comes and defends the place for you. Well, it's like you, 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 you turn off their Overwatch, you charge in, and when they fight you back, they're also at minus one to hit you because of the shield discharge. So it's not nearly as powerful as the Serpent Shield once was, where it was like, that was just an extra shot you had, like once per game. So I'm kind of fine with that, though. Yeah, it's toned down, but it feels like it's fitting more of what it's supposed to be about. Also, um, the Resonator Shard for Rangers, because re- Rangers have, the, and only Rangers, Shard Runners don't, but Rangers have the Resonator Shard keyword. They can basically mark targets for uh, D-Cannons, Doom Weavers, or Shadow Weavers, and uh, allow them to reroll the hit rolls. Interesting. So nice. if you're running Rangers, that could be a useful one to have. As long as you're also using D-Cannons, Doom Weavers, or Shadow Weavers. Or also matchless agility is a good one for you. That lets you just automatically battle focus six rather than rolling. So yes. there's there's that that's how you can get past the uh, the losing three inches when you move into train as long as you well, stay within three inches of the train. Three inches. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I definitely think you're gonna like. I think you're gonna see people using like relics of the shrines is gonna be good. Oh to yeah. Use. Seer council is gonna be very useful. Um, uh, half useful. Some people like I mean, it might be good to spread those out. You you really have to say, yeah, I'm going to keep these units together because sometimes you'll want a warlock over there and a Farsi over there. But yeah, then champion of the Eldari to have that second warlord trait is really useful. Uh, multifaceted mind is really useful. Use a stratagem in your psychic phase after attempting to perform a psychic action with a Farseer, Shadow Seer, or Eve Rain. Um, that tar- unit can attempt to manifest one psychic power this phase. So oh, you that can is still nice. score a psychic action and then be able to do like a, a guide or a doom or something like that. Or same with that Eldritch Storm. So that, that is very cool to be able to have that option. That's going to be a, a useful one. Phantasm lets you redeploy three units. That I see that one being used a lot. And it lets you move those units into strategic reserves without having to pay CP. So you can set up stuff on the table and then pull it away and put it into reserves. And especially if you're using a webway gate, then be able to just put it out wherever you want it. So there's a lot of good command point using things. Right, which is why like it's gonna be like that's one of those reasons why like wraith knights are really hard to justify because those are gonna eat up cp like not just wraith knights um if you want to focus on jet bikes you you can't really do that in the battalion you have to use the i believe vanguard not vanguard yeah you gotta do outriders yeah and there's three cp and if you want to do an aspect like full aspect where you want to just focus on aspects and use dire avengers like they used to well that's gonna be your vanguard detachment that's three more cp yeah. Um, so it just feels like unless you're doing a core Eldar thing and don't want to pay the, I think it was like 180 or maybe it's 195 troop tax for taking the minimum squad of three squads of Rangers. But even then, that only sol- solves your elites because you, you have six elites. 
your fast attack, if well, if you're doing the jet bikes, uh, that I don't know. I just feel like pre-game setup, this army is going to just bleed CP. Oh, I'm sure it will. Which is like you're going to have to, which and then you're going to be try having to use CP very judiciously, which is why that ruins fortune that just gets you a CP every turn yeah. when you use it. Yeah, I think uh, you you're going to need that. Also, I'm impressed by how much stuff in here has the core keyword. A ton of it does. Like, obviously, your your troops, for the most part, X. That's another thing. Corsairs don't, which is why only only Ariel is the <laughs> team works with them terribly well. But like all your all the you know Asriani troops, all like all the non flyer. Uh, aspect warriors have core. All the wraith constructs have core, including the wraith lord has core. Wind riders have core. Vipers don't. Swooping hawks do. Warp spiders do. Shining spears do. Shroud runners do. Uh, Dark reapers do. Almost all your infantry that isn't like characters in some way has core. So th- there's a lot of things that can benefit from like various stratagems, uh, auras, etc. And then um, finally, the uh, the missions, the uh, chapter approved missions, specifically for Asriani, not Harlequins. So we've got Warpcraft, uh, Scry Futures, which gives you a psychic action to do within range. Uh, like you have to be within range of an objective marker that hasn't been scryed yet. If the psychic action is successfully completed. Select one unscribed objective marker within the psyker units within range of. The objective marker is said to have been scryed. And the warp charge value goes up by one. It starts at four, and it keeps it goes up every time you scry. You get three victory points each time you scry future. So to max out, you have to scry five things. Yeah, um, and I don't know. I'm not fond of psychic action ones. Because one, you can't cast any other psychics unless you use that stratagem. And two, they can still deny it. Yeah, and especially at Warp Charge 4. And. Well, their deny is not see. based off your Warp Charge. It's based off. Oh, you're saying how high well, does it I'm go? So it'd be 4, high, then yeah. 5, then 6, 7, yeah. 8. So go ahead, go up to 9. No, just 8. Warp, warp Charge 8. Just do 5 times. That's not bad. It's not bad. And if you have, like, Warlock or Farseer uh, Skyrunners, like, you could easily zip around True. and grab objectives. So it's it's an achievable one if you build your army a certain way. Right. I'm just still afraid of the deny. But also, if you're using your strands of fate, you can always put a six into this one. Yeah, because it is just for a psychic test, and psychic actions count as a psychic test. So Yep. Um, let's see. Shadow Operations has Scout the Enemy. Um, this one, uh, you, wanna be, you only want to do this if you're using Rangers, honestly. It's an action. One unit from your army can start to perform this action at the end of your movement phase if it's not within six inches of your deployment zone. If the unit performing the action is a ranger's unit, it's complete at the end of the turn. Otherwise, it's complete at the start of your next turn. Um, When it's completed, add score two victory points if the unit performing the action is not wholly within your opponent's deployment zone. Score four if it's wholly within your your opponent's deployment zone. Whew, that's a tough ask for a ranger unit. Yeah... Because you also can't infiltrate them into your opponent's deployment zone, right. so it'd have to be a different or later turn. You are on the deploy or the opponent's deployment zone. Yeah, but rangers can hide, right? They they they've got just keep on, and that might be where Gloomfield's actually useful of trying to get opponent deployment zone position. Yeah, 
And it's also like the turns you're doing this, it's turns you're not shooting with your rangers. That's, that is like, I mean, you can do it with non-rangers. You absolutely can. It just, the units has to survive your opponent's turn as well. Well, also though, uh, if you're just taking rangers there as your troop tax, here's an action for them to do rather than... (laughs) Fair, fair. Yeah, that, that's so, definitely I mean, an option. There, there is, I can see use in it. Let's see. Then under No Mercy, No Respite, there's Wrath of Cain. Uh, score a victory point at the end of the battle round if one or more enemy units were destroyed by a melee attack made by an aspect warrior, uh, one or aspect warrior unit. Uh, one victory point if they were destroyed by a ranged attack from a different aspect warrior unit. And score two victory points at the end of the battle round if one or more enemy units. So you get one if you destroyed you know, destroyed a unit in a melee attack, one if you did it in a range attack, and an additional two if you did both. I don't like these. They just seem so hard. I mean, it's kill- well, for me, killing units is more the harder part. Um, I'm sure if you built a killy-killy army, you could probably do better with this one. To max it out is tricky, because you also have to have the yeah. right targets and the right... It's like... It's very dependent on what your opponent has. And then finally, battle, Battlefield Supremacy, do not attempt if you do not have a webway gate, because it won't work. If you select the secondary objective and your army contains a webway gate, that unit cannot be set up within six inches of your deployment zone. If your army does not contain a webway gate, okay, so you can do it without a webway gate. In your first command phase, select one objective marker that's not within six inches of your deployment zone. At the end of each of your command phases, if your opponent includes a webway gate, score a number of victory points equal to the current battle round number if a unit from your army is within three inches of the webway gate and there are no enemy models within three inches of the webway gate. Or if your army does not include a webway gate and you control the selected objective with an Asriani unit from your army, score a number of victory points equal to the current battle round number. Um, that one's not terrible. Actually, I take that back. I don't know if I want to take that one with a webway gate because it seems harder to do. No, with a webway gate, I think this is the perfect thing to bait your enemy in and then assault him when they get there. So you'd have to be able to make sure because here's the tricky part. Oh, true. It's if it's, yeah. if your opponent moves in on their turn, they it can would deny, deny you, the and then then you'd assault them afterwards. But then the point section is gone. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Whereas if you have the if you don't have the webway gate, all you have to do is control an objective, and that's very doable. So this is actually worse if you take a webway gate. I think it's harder because it's a bigger area you have to defend. That's fair. So, yeah, yeah, when I first looked at it, it's like, oh, yeah, you want to take this with a webway gate. And then I read it. No, you don't want to take this with a webway gate. I don't know that I'd take any of these, to be honest. Yeah, honestly. Shadow Operations would be the only one I'd contemplate, and that's just because I really don't have much use for the Rangers, maybe. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I could see Warpcraft depending on, like, I wouldn't fight it. I wouldn't take it against a Psyker heavy army, for sure. Too many chances for it to be denied. If I was playing Ta- against, like, Tau or Drukhari, I could absolutely see uh, Scry Futures being a thing. But if also if I'm playing against Tru- Tau or Drukhari, I'm on a back foot already, because those are extremely strong armies. So, um, yeah, I don't know if any of these are fantastic. I'd, I'd like usually when we look at these there's like one or two you're like oh yeah this is the one you're going to take or you'll take this one if you do this build and this one if you do this build and I like the aspect warrior one I can like wrath of Cain I can kind of see if you build your army just right but yeah I none of those are fantastic so that gets us through 
this entire book as far as the Asriani half. Like that for for part one, this finishes part one. Uh, I'd say it's three fifths. Yeah, Craft World. As a longtime Craft Worlds player, how do you feel about it so far? Uh, mixed. I like a lot of the updates. I'm st- like I think my complaints would be moving Dire Avengers out of troops. I think is a big hurt. Uh, but I, I need to play it and see if how that is because maybe having all aspect warriors have their own way to get objective secured with having the Phoenix Lord there will make it better, which it probably will because having like Jane's R and Banshees out doing their own thing. Well, if they take a point, well, they can hold it until I get something there before they go tearing off at something else. I would, didn't use Wraith Lords much, but it makes me think that having a Wraith army will be a little bit harder. Be- well, I mean, you already had no troops for it, so you were going to take a Vanguard probably anyway for all the elites. And uh, and then the Wraith Knights. I, I, I wish there was a way to bring them into the fold, even if it was like a one or two point strategy. Or, well, they, I don't think they need a strategy because it's already six points to bring them in anyway. Yeah, just some way, maybe like I said, maybe a one or two point stratagem to allow them to have the craft world trait, even if they're in a super heavy ox deployment. Yeah, it just... Overall, I think really good. I'm excited to try it out. It's just lots of little things that, and it all has to do, revolve around command points, but thankfully there's a psychic power to generate a command point. You have a warlord trait to try to get command points from your opponent. Yeah, I, I want to see how it, how it plays out. I think overall, I think it'll play out fine. I don't think it's going to be like a top tier, like Tau, Admech, Drakari. Anyone's just like, tearing through things, but I think it'll, it'll be solid. I'll say a solid mid-tier, and then hopefully players will figure out good ways to make it higher. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'm with you. I think that like there's this is a this is a very solid mid-tier army. It is it, there is no question this is an improvement over the last Craft Worlds Codex. Not that the last Craft Worlds Codex was bad for its edition, but this is a good for the most part ninth edition update. The damage output got brought to ninth edition standards. They got more survivability on a lot of key things by the addition of like invuln saves, uh, better armor in some spots. Uh, Phoenix Lords having survivability is really good. And as much as you touted against it, the Exarchs having new abilities and powers and relics is pretty the, the, cool too. Like, Exarch, it's cool. It's just one of those things like, man, it gets expensive. But then I was looking, <laughs> true. I was looking at, uh, Phoenix Rising. It's like, oh yeah, but in the previous version, you had to pay CP to do it. Right. And so it's like, points are you know, like, it's, it's basically, it's like, what resource do you want to spend? Do you want to spend points or do you want to spend CP? And then they decided to, and I think that's fine. Uh, there's definitely, um, best ofs for each of those aspects. Like there's, you know, the, the, the Exarch powers are not all created equal, even by points no. wise. Like, they're, <laughs> you know, some of them are not worth their points and some of them absolutely are. But there's also a just, there's just a few things in this book that I look at and I'm like, there's no reason for this not to be, for this to be this way. Like, you know, we mentioned the Autark. There's no reason why they had to do the Autark the way, no, no, the way they did. I mean, I, I'm agreeing. There's no reason for Corsairs to be handled as clumsily as they as they did. I almost would have rather them not have had co- Corsairs in the book at all and had, do them in a separate thing. I could also see that, yeah, because, uh, like you said, they don't add really anything. And 
I kind of want to pick up one of the Corsair things just to have them, even though I don't play Kill Team. But I don't know that I'd use them in an army either. Yeah, I just, I don't, like, I don't see quite what their role is. I wish, like, again, I see the utility in the Phoenix Lords. I just wish they weren't so cut and paste. I wish they had a little bit more individuality. They're they're minor gripes, uh, you know, as far as the overall playability of the army. Um, I, the army, there's definitely a lot of builds you can do with this. I think the internal balance is pretty good. Like, I, there's very few units where I look at it and I'm like, oh, this one is absolutely crap and this is absolutely the better one. I can. I mean, I always said that about the Falcon, but now I'm I'm reassessing that. The Falcon actually, they gave the Falcon an actual role by making it a drop pod, and I think that's really solid. Yeah, now I might act. I don't own any Falcons because I've never saw the need, but my, I might have to. There look wasn't one before this. It was, it was like <laughs> it was know. a less good. It was a less good wave serpent. Like they they did give it like a cloud strike stratagem at one point, but that just allowed you to deep strike it. And it's like, well, yay! There's no. I can already do that with everyone like, else. Right, but now it's like, oh, oh, that's just built into the unit now. Okay, that's actually pretty cool. Well, so, and being called out to do first turn. That's the bigger yes. one. Oh, yeah. Being able to just automatically do it is fantastic. Um, yeah. So, no, it, it, like the internal balance is really good, which means army building, like list building is going to be tricky. It's going to, you know, it's like you're tricky in the sense of, uh, you know, it, it's going to be easy to try to fall into the trap of, oh, but I want all of it. Well, you can't have all of it. You're going to have to. Oh, pick well, you can have all of it. It'll just be a 10,000 point army. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> and have zero no, but, CP left. But Oh, my gosh. But no, that, the, the thing about this is we've said about Eldar before is there's so many different themed builds you can build in an Eldar army. And I think this book will allow you to do any of those, even if you have to pay like 10 CP out of your starting 12 to get everything. Right, right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll go real quick hobby progress and morale phase. I, cause I know you and I are going to be talking about the same thing for morale phase. Um, hobby progress. I am getting really close to being done with the Bellacore I'm working on. His details are starting to come in nicely. And I uh, like the big thing I have to do on him now is like the flaming sword of, or like the sword of shadows, like Eldritch fires coming off of it. So I got to figure out the exact technique I'm going to do for that, but I think I've got one picked out. And then I have a bunch of Eldari stuff to assemble, apparently. <laughs> Thanks, Games Workshop. I, I am with you in that I have a lot of Eldari stuff to put together, because I've got the Eldritch Omens box. And then um, also, just because I wanted them, I ordered from Games Workshop um, Prince Uriel and... Illic Nightspear, and supposedly they should be arriving today. They would have supposedly arrived a couple days ago, but we kind of had an ice storm here, so everything was shut down and the thing was delayed. So those would be, they were the only characters I did not have out of the Eldar Codex, so now I will have them all. Um, and then it'll be just like debating how to put together the Autark and just, yeah, figuring things out on getting my Eldar to go. And then that brings us to the morale phase, and you and I have both been playing Horizon Forbidden West. Well, so is Richard. <laughs> well, so is Richard, but he's not here, so he hasn't. He can't, he can't oh. discuss it with us. <laughs> but also, he he's been switching back back and forth between that and Elden Ring. Now that Elden Ring is out, so right, I imagine he's going to be in Souls territory for a while. But uh, yeah, 
but uh, no, Horizon Forbidden West has been like fantastic so far, and I think it's interesting that we're roughly at the same point in the story. I think you're slightly further ahead than I am, but we've gone yeah. different directions on the map, so we've experienced stuff that the other hasn't, so which is kind of cool. Yeah, because once you get, once you, I guess I'll call it the prelude section, where you get to the Forbidden West area, uh, the map's open. Go explore. Go find things. And I love games where I can just go explore. Um, and so, yeah, I, I've explored South. You explored West. So we've had all sorts of, other than story quests, all of the side quests we've done, or the main story quests, all the side quests we've done have been totally different. We found different, like, ruins to explore. We found different, I guess, camps and bandit camps, rebel camps to fight through, tall necks to subdue to get us more map locations uh no and i i've loved the exploratory facet of it weapons i don't know about yet because i've i've pretty much stuck to just using either my bow or the sniper bow because i've really gone a stealth and shoot build because yeah we get there's new weapons like throwing spikes and tossing bombs and i was just like and there's apparently a glove that sends out shredder discs or something and yeah i have not explored any of that so there's still so much to try out and explore, but I'm just like, well, I want to explore first, so let's just do what I what I know, and then I'll go back and try out different weapons later. Yeah, and it's an absolutely beautiful game to explore. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, I, I loved the first Horizon game. You know, Zero Dawn was fantastic, and it it, it had that very much that that feeling of oh, you see that you can see that out in the distance. Yeah, you can go there. And it had, and this definitely has that uh, same feel, but also just a bunch of different biomes to travel. Like the, just the environments are different. Oh yeah, I've um, already been to snow and desert and forest. Yeah. And I, like, I avoid the water. <laughs> water is, is still, uh, yeah, water is, the, being able to swim more than just like at the surface level is cool, but also, it yeah, is. at this point of the game, for both of us, it's extremely deadly, because you can run out getting, of oxygen really fast. Yeah, getting trapped in a, in a cave underwater when you can't get back to the surface, yeah, I did drown once because of, <laughs> yeah. There's also, there's been a lot of, like, quality of life improvements, like uh, free, tel- free fast travel between campfires. Um, yes. Oh, my gosh. That's so uh, useful. The, like, the, the Valor charge-up thing. So, you get, like, s- special moves that you can do and, like, the, the, the weapon techniques you can learn. Like, I, I love doing, like, triple knock arrows and firing those. I, I do like the weapon techniques. As for the valor, I am probably not using it correctly. Cause I, I, like I said, I've been going on a stealth type build. So I took the stealth valor thing. And so I only use it when I'm in a, a pinch. And I, since I'm not getting into pinches too often, I don't use it a lot. So I'm, I've, as our friend Tim was saying, I'm letting my valor go to waste cause I'm not using it as soon as it's full. But. The stealth field makes you invisible for a while, enough time to go get away. So, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I use a ranged master, like range mastery, a lot. So, like doing the extra range damage, which has really helped out in a few oh, true. spots. And oh I, my gosh! I am mostly using uh, like bow and sniper bow. Um, I've tried using the warrior bow in a few cases because, like, right now it's one of my only sources of shock damage. Oh, uh, fair. Uh, <laughs> oh so my gosh, that. Rob! I'll say this. I had one spot where I had to use fire damage to blow something up, and the only thing I had with fire was a trip caster. 
So you just had to lure it into that? No, it was a it's a puzzle thing, so I had to do that, oh. and I had to like somehow trigger it. So I ended up blowing myself up and and oops, doing it. <laughs> well, I, I I got through it. <laughs> well, there you go. But uh, like I've I've discovered a, a love for the rope caster that I did not have in the first game. Like first game, I was like, eh, the rope caster is interesting, but I'd rather just kill the thing rather than you know tie it down. Now there are a couple of cases where I'm like, no, tying it down is real good. Yeah. I should just it make, makes hitting it, it later easier. It. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the rope caster has been cool. Yeah. I, I think I have, I, I don't know if I've purchased a shredder gauntlet or not yet. So I, I have not I played. I haven't played around with it. I like, there's things I like, like how you can hit canisters of blaze or acid and cause them to like start spraying out liquid. And then all of a sudden explode. That's been mm-hmm. really cool. The new uh, styles of uh, robots to fight are like there's like some of them are classics like the Thunderjaw or the like Scrapper, Scrapper, Ravager. There's one fight I had to do against like two or three stalkers at a time, the ones that can go invisible. That one sucked, <laughs> but I made okay, it through. Well, that, 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 that's where we're saying I haven't fought any of those yet. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I fought a Ravager, but it wasn't a stalker one. No, that the... Yeah, the Ravagers, like, I I can deal with two or three Ravagers without yeah. too much trouble. Stalkers suck. The ones I've had issue with have been the ones that go underground and then come up mm-hmm. under you. That hurts, because yeah, uh, I, I can't attack them underground. Right. The, and, like, a couple of, like, the Wide Maws and uh, Shell Snappers now are, like, those are some of the more difficult ones I've had to deal with, so... But, you know, it's like every time you fight them, it's it's kind of like you know, like hunting and fighting something in real life. It's like you learn what it can do. You learn how it moves and how it reacts. And then you can deal with it. You know, you, you kind start of like forming a puzzle strategies. to figure out. Mm-hmm. I really like I loved the first game. Uh, and I've seen a few people like a few reviewers complain. It's like, ah, but I can't give this like a perfect score because it's just more of the same. And I'm like, is that a bad thing? I wanted more of this. And now I have more of it. And I am very happy. <laughs> And well, yeah, I'm barely a quarter. Th- I'm not even a quarter through the game yet. And I'm, I'm just loving every quarter. minute of it. Yeah. And I'll say at least story wise in the first game, it was more about exploration and figuring out what happened, all that. And and now you kind of know what happened. And so in the second game, it's like, how do you bring that same wonder and discovery in there? I didn't know how they, I thought it was just going to be, oh, okay, la la. No, they, they've actually brought that back. And I'm to the point where I kind of know what's going on now, and now I've got my path. And the, air quote, villains of the game was not what I expected, but it makes no, sense. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. So I- I'm enjoying this. This actually feels like a good part two. Because you know how in like trilogies people always said that like the second one is not as good as the first? I, I think this one, well, I'll see, have to see how it ends and stuff, but I think it will be fine. And I'm enjoying everything I've hit so far of it. Yeah, same here. I I have not had a bad moment in this game. I've had a couple of tough fights, but oh I gosh. haven't. But nothing I haven't enjoyed. Like I, you know, it's like I, this is one of those where like you finish a tough fight, and maybe this oh, is what it. Souls players like from those games. <laughs> but oh, no, like, it totally is. You you have that feeling of a job well done. Of yeah, of that. And I've had uh, well numerous boss fights where it's taken me a couple tries to actually get it. The first time, because I didn't know what was what was going on, and then the second time, 
I kind of had a feeling of what was going on, so I knew what to look for. I knew what to dodge because when you get hit, it's punishing. And I'm only playing on yeah. normal. If if I was on like on a harder difficulty, it'd probably be like one hit kills rather than two hit kills. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 learning the fights, and like you said, Rob, that's kind of what Souls players do, except the the they have to learn more and get punished more. And from what I remember, <laughs> yeah, it's like I think there's there's more emphasis on like per- getting things perfect in souls games although from what i've gathered playing this game on some of the harder difficulties could get could almost have that feeling too yeah but and the other thing i i like is you can tackle like we had different paths we took you can also tackle different bosses totally different ways based on your play style and what you're carrying like some things are weak to multiple things and are you going to go flat out after them with just big shots trying to disarm, like take off their armor and weapons with good play shots? Or are you going to try and lie in wait, put some traps down and, and try and lure them over to deal some damage that way? So it allows you to do different play styles and there's no one way to beat something. Agreed. I, it's the flexibility in gameplay and yeah, the ability to craft your own style, especially with how huge the skill trees are now. Yeah, it's like you you can really craft your own style of how Aloy fights. And it's one of these things like I don't think there's a wrong way to play the game, which is a fantastic place to be for a game. Like it, it, multiple styles work. I guess there is a wrong way of like running off a cliff and drowning. You know, that would be a wrong way to play. But as far or as maybe like, trying to play with your eyes closed, that would be not ideal. No, that's just probably not that's wrong. Just challenge. But- <laughs> But no, uh, hi, if you get a chance to play it, um, and there is a PS4 version if you don't have a PS5, and I've heard the PS4 version still runs pretty well. So, you know, it's like not necessarily a bad experience. It just won't be the absolute beauty experience that the PS5 version is, but uh, it's still very playable. So um, if you are all interested and if you liked the first Horizon game or maybe you've played it on PC and you want it like, and you have access to a PS4 or PS5. Um, Horizon Forbidden West is a lot of fun, and uh, I wholeheartedly recommend it. And that gets us through episode 245, part Woo-hoo. one of the Codex of the Eldari. <laughs> <laughs> Next episode, we will be talking about Harlequins and Inari and how they fit into this Codex, which is three armies in one. I mean, honestly, I'm not going to count Corsairs. There's not enough there to be an army, but there are three full armies in here. So we'll be talking about the other, the other parts of the book next episode with hopefully a full cast again. Or, or maybe Gene Stale is then Eldari. We'll work it out. We'll work it out. <laughs> but until then, from, well, I guess, both of us here at Preferred Enemies, <laughs> I'm your host, Rob. Dennis. And, and that's it. <laughs> good, <laughs> good night, good gaming, and good God, we've got another half of this book to go through. <laughs>
Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2 No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.